Tip Today with Fran Curry, IMRO Radio Award Gold Winner. In association with slatterysgarage.ie. Welcome along to Tip Today, 1800-938-007. That's our free phone number. Won't cost you anything to make a call. And Emma is looking after the programme today. Coming up on this morning's show, more reaction to calls for a burqa ban. A Tip Today listener asking for parenting advice gets a huge reaction. Should we stop paying our electricity bills? One listener certainly thinks so, and we'll be chatting to him as well. The challenges faced by wheelchair users if they're trying to get a taxi. Also the rise in domestic abuse in men over 60. Hidden histories taking us back to the Irish Civil War with uh, Dr. Connor Reedy. The final gardening slot of uh, the year. So if you have a final uh, gardening query, will you log it with us as soon as you can on 083 311 3311 and we'll be chatting to Walter Nesbeth uh, towards the end of the programme. And also today, following on from last night's uh, primetime programme, if you were looking at that, we'll hear one woman's experience in overcoming an addiction to codeine. And it's a most interesting story and indeed a cautionary tale as well. So all of that and much, much more on the way. Of course, you can uh, email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Look at what's making headlines today. The Irish Times jailed ex-Garda at Centre of Further Investigation. And that's the story of the former Garda superintendent, uh, John Murphy, who was jailed for six and a half years yesterday on drug charges. He's also at the centre of an investigation into allegations that information held by the force was supplied to the Hutch criminal gang. Also on the Times today, the Irish domestic economy could slip into technical recession in the coming quarters as households and businesses struggle against soaring inflation. And that's according to the Central Bank. The Irish Daily Mail, just 27% trust Sinn Féin to tackle crisis in cost of living. So just 27% there of the public believing that Sinn Féin can tackle the cost of living um, compared with 37% for the coalition government. That's according to an Irish Daily Mail uh, poll. Uh, The poll of 1,500 adults carried out uh, days after the budget found the support for Sinn Féin's uh, ability to solve the crisis varied hugely according to age. So I'm sure the party will be taking that into account, even though there wasn't a huge bounce for the... Um, for the government, indeed, uh, in that other poll taken just a few days after the uh, budget. The Irish Examiner, they're leading with uh, prepaid energy users at risk of being cut off. Home and business owners face uh, further sustained increases in the energy costs because of extreme increases in wholesale energy prices, they have been warned. And also, interesting to read today, um, in the Irish Examiner, I don't know how you feel about uh, this, but the membership of, of uh, on board Planola will remain unchanged despite a new action plan aimed at restoring public confidence in the beleaguered uh, planning authority. But I find that rather interesting. I mean, if they want to uh, restore public confidence uh, to have the board remain, uh, again, we'd love to know what you think of that. Uh, the Irish Independent. And they're leading with a tax shock for 150,000 drivers as mileage levy is set to soar. And this is typical of the 
uh, drip feeding of, of the more negative news that always follows a budget. But uh, thousands of workers with company cars are to be hit with a massive hike in tax. And the changes coming in January mean that benefiting kind tax will soar by up to 40% in some cases for those who are given a vehicle by their employer because they have to travel to work. And also on the Indo today, very worrying stuff indeed because former international rugby union players are at a much higher risk of dementia, motor neuron disease and Parkinson's disease than the general population. That's according to new research as well. So that's a look at what's making headlines in your newspapers today. If you want to comment on any of that, uh, 083 311 now, we spoke yesterday to Philly on the show who told us about how he confronted a lady in Kilkenny at the weekend for wearing a burqa. He also spoke to her husband. So just to remind you, here's a little of what he had to say. As we were going down the stairs, this young lady came up against me wearing a burqa, a black burqa. You know, just some late for a ride. Yes. And I, I stopped her and I said, excuse me, but... I said, you don't need to wear that here in Ireland, I said, because we have a free society. And I said, I, I, and I'm particularly taken back by the fact that you're wearing it now because of the fact that uh, in Iran last week, a young lady was beaten to death by the Islamic police because she hadn't her uh, veil on properly or whatever. And I said, uh, I'm surprised that you are seemingly going along with this. She didn't say anything to me. She just brushed past me then and went up. And that's uh, Philly from yesterday's programme. Now we got a huge reaction both on the phones and indeed online to his actions. And James joins me now. James, good morning to you. Morning, Fran. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Great to talk to you this morning, James. Big, you, di- big divide among our listeners over whether Philly was right or wrong to do what he did. What about your opinion? Yeah, I, I think he was actually way out of order. Um, I know, I know in, in certain countries like in Afghanistan, it's um, compulsory that, that uh, people of that Islamic faith ha- have to wear burqas. But uh, not here in Ireland. And uh, she, she should be, you know, allowed to do whatever she wants, each each to their own. That's, that's what I would say, you know. He was reacting to the killing of the 22-year-old in Tehran, uh, Masa uh, Amini, and um, he, he was very incensed about that, and he felt he had to object in some way. But I presume you believe that he did it uh, incorrectly. I, I think so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that, that lady can't be... And responsible for for what happened, you know, a couple of thousand miles away. Mm. Um, it's not not her fault, and I, I only assume that she's wearing the the burqa by choice. Mm. You know, um, in the Islamic faith, it's um, the wearing of the burqa is, is seen as a kind of a um, sign of um, modesty, mm-hmm. and it's mm. just part of their culture and, and should be seen as such and should be respected as such. What I was surprised at um, was the sort of gentle reaction he got from her and her husband. I know that if you confronted an Irish couple over something, <laughs> yeah. like, they'd take the head off you, I presume. They absolutely would, yeah, and rightly so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as I say, it, 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 it seems as a sign of modesty in, in the Islamic faith, and um, 
as I say, should be just respected for that. And and still, countries like France and Belgium and the Netherlands, I know, and Switzerland, and I can't remember. I think Chad and lots of countries banning uh, the wearing of the burqa. Um, do you think that's a road we should go down here, or do you believe in the whole oh, no. notion of free expression? Oh, free expression, definitely, yeah, yeah absolutely, one hundred percent. I mean, if you, if you think back, it, it's it's not that long ago in our, in our own history that. Um, People are hanged for wearing the, the colour green. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so uh, no, no. Each to their own. Kind of. Yeah, and it's not that I you you sound much younger than me, James. But I mean, I remember when women no, had <laughs> when when women had to wear headscarves going into to mass, and younger women would wear mantillas and keeping their head covered and stuff. You know, in the in the Catholic tradition. So it's uh, uh, it's not all that long ago. No, no, exactly, yeah. Uh, but we've moved on, friend. Yeah. I'd like to think we have, anyway, you know. Yeah, in some ways, anyway, James. <laughs> in, in some, some ways, ways, yeah. James, really good to talk to you today. And thank, thank you, you Thank Take you for care. your contribution. Thank oh, you. Bye-bye, you know. That's uh, James speaking to us this morning and reacting to um, Philly's comments uh, to us yesterday. Now, another big reaction uh, yesterday to a dear Phil letter where a parent was looking for advice on her child's questioning around whether... He was transgender. Now, Andrea joins me online. Uh, Andrea, good morning to you. Good morning, Frank. And uh, this was most interesting. This was a very a bright child, curious child, asking the mother certain uh, questions about transgender. Obviously saw this um, online, but maybe getting a little bit confused uh, about the information that's out there as well. How do you feel about this, Andrea? Well, look, I'm going to be very careful in what I say here on, on this stage. Like, transgenderism is everywhere now. It's, it's um, I don't have any actual thoughts on it, quite honest, on that. My comment that I made yesterday was about the online. Mm. And that's what the child has been exposed to, is how he's seen this online. It's only, what, seven, is it? Seven years old, yeah. Yeah, I mean, at seven... To be exposed to the internet and all that's there, the good and the bad, you really need your parental controls. You really need your, you know, really watching what they're what they're looking at. I mean, these ads come in on on even on the YouTube kids channels, you know. Yes. Um, as I said, subliminal as well. So, same as it works with adults, advertising markets are very clever, as you would know yourself, you know. Um, yeah. Personally, children under the age of that, that young, like everything, everything they are exposed to goes in. At least the positive here is that he spoke to his mother about it and, you know, asked her about it, which was a good thing in itself. Look, it was a good thing in himself. As I say, I had small children that wanted to be Spider-Man and cats and dogs. I had a child that wanted to be a dog, went around with a tail, didn't grow up to be one. I'm not saying that there isn't such a thing as people feeling wrong or alien in their own body from a very young age. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is it's jumped on immediately now. You know? Mm. It's, it's like a great talk. The child is just confused because he's been watching something. Yes. It's not like he's come to her and said, I felt like this all my life, Mammy. And she said herself that he was a boyish boy. He was trucks. That's right. You know, yeah. toys, cars. A lot of children that really genuinely have this um, body alienation 
uh, for want of a better word, they know. It's, it's, it's kind of obvious for a lot of families. It's, a, it's kind of be obvious for a lot of parents too. From a very young age. And are you saying to me that, that this child and maybe similar children, this wouldn't even occur to them unless that they read about it or they were uh, confronted with it online. Is that is that what you're saying to me, Andrea? Well, listen, I've worked I worked in childcare for a long, long time. I studied in childcare. I know about child development and how the brain works. Everything in the first five years, every single thing, good, bad, indifferent, goes in. The brain works on comprehending what the, what the learning right. They're like was. sponges, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. They are limpets on rocks. They take in everything, which is why, as we get older, when they, you know, when we all have issues, which all adults do, we have our big issues. Some have awful ones, traumatic childhoods. You know, trauma can be something as as simple to a person as their favourite toy taken as a punishment, and that can extremely affect somebody and shape the way their mind goes. That's something really small. I'm only going very minor. And that may that may come that may come back to them later in their lives as 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 a trauma, the the abandonment. Yeah, as I said, look, it's something. I'm just saying for a small case scenario, most interesting, something like that, the family dog dying or something. That kind Mm, of grief can can shape a process in somebody's mind if it's not dealt with properly. Um, This child who has obviously been watching something. You know, because it's there, it's very open. It's now in our school uh, sexual uh, understanding. The, mm. The, mm. It's, it's there. It's there. We get a letter to sign. All parents get a letter to sign. They tell you to go online to look in. This is what we're going to be doing in our sex school program. And um, if we don't want to try to partake, you can And, and do you sign those, uh, those I forms? I won't school my children, friends, so I took them out. So, right. you yeah. know. And what was that part of the reasoning? You can't control everything. Uh, look, that's a different day. That's a different discussion. I told her myself why I did my... Um, uh, there were many reasons why I decided mm. to homeschool and one of them being, like, as I said, look, I've worked 15-odd years in childcare mm. and I just didn't like where the road was going down, basically. I see the way children can change for good and bad. And would you um, give them access to, to screens and to pads? Oh, and now they're not babies, right? Okay, you know, but um, like they never had a phone until they were 12. Okay, you know, they didn't have the phone now, they had Nintendo and whatever. Like, but links, I, I get an alert to my phone if something came, hmm. wasn't you know, I could be sitting downstairs and I go, Right, okay, and I go up, what's this? And it could be something very harmless, it usually was, thank God, but they can. They can, like like yourself, you could be watching something and something will come in that you didn't click on. Yes. And children's fingers are quite nimble and they can, they're very eager. Something comes on, flashing, click, you know. And before you know it, they're, they're down a something that they might not have the comprehension or the understanding for. And they might watch something that's quite harmless, really, if you, if you think about it. They're, it's done very carefully. Um. But they attract the attention of the, the young person and they'll start to question. Now, as I said, you know, some children are very obvious from the off. You know, parents might always have a sneaky suspicion. You see that sometimes we've all read the magazines, we've all hmm. seen the programmes, we've all watched the documentaries and people saying it. We knew Malcolm, blah, blah, blah. You know, you know you'd see it. My mother always knew, I think, or my father had a suspicion. But, yeah. like, you know, it does come up. But for a seven-year-old child to... 
come out of this, out of kind of nowhere, where there was no... Yeah, because as, as you said, he was always a boyish boy. He liked yeah. trucks, all of that thing. And typical of a boy that age, you know, he didn't want anything anything to do with the girls or anything like that. Yeah. And then what he said to the mother was most interesting. He felt that life may be more exciting as a girl from what yeah. I suppose he gathered online. Now, see, that, that really hit to me that this is definitely... Like, if I was an expert in this, I'm not. As I said, I know I'm pretty educated in child development, right? So that, to me, signals it, it, this child has been blindsided by something he's seen to make him feel this could be more appealing. Girls have a great life. Girls, you know, maybe girls have more fun. I don't know what he's seen. Okay, well, um, with, with, your, with, your, maybe, with yeah. your impressive experience then in childcare, Andrea, what would your advice to that mother be? Well, I wouldn't be running for the LGBTQI, whatever it is, community. I wouldn't. I, I certainly wouldn't. There's way more things that need to be discussed there before right. even thinking or considering to go down that line. And I'm not saying nothing, nothing against the community. Yes, I'm I understand that. I understand. You do not want the child to be swayed. I would go through the search history and see if there was anything there that popped up to her that was right. This is what it's all about. Was it maybe even a kids' program? Was it something that was said even in school? Mm. Um, diversity is encouraged, and that's fine. We are all different. Families are completely mm. different than what they were when you and I were growing up. Mom, dad, yeah. married. It's completely different now. We have blended families. We have. Uh, same-sex uh, families. We have, you know, sex families with grandparents, rare children. With, it's all different. And it's all much more acceptable. Um, mm. It's a huge multicultural uh, lifestyle now. Right. You know, so, but, but that family, they are where they are at the moment. The seven-year-old ha- has he, this information at the moment. He's thinking along these lines. So again, would you, you say you wouldn't advise the mum to go down the line of the organisations you mentioned. Uh, but what, what should she be doing? Right now. No, he's only seven and okay. it's just something he's saying. But what should I, she be doing then, Andrea? She should probably be discussing maybe with her close friends. Have they ever... I and mean, maybe she got some friends with older children who might have said this at some stage. Mm. You know? God, I used to say that, friends. I have five children. I used to say, well, I wish I was born a boy. I used to say that. Because I thought boys got away with everything. We, we were a family of two girls. With no brothers, I just thought boys had more fun, you know. Right, but that, that wasn't questioning. Wasn't. That wasn't questioning your gender or your sex. That was no, just to see that they got away with murder, which they did, of course. Yeah, but that boy, that that young boy, didn't actually say he wanted to be a girl because he no, felt he said it was more exciting. It might be more, more exciting. exciting. Yeah. I said the same thing about wanting to be a boy, and thank God no one took me to a community to. To, you know, I was told you're a girl, Andre. You can climb trees, but boys do it better. You know, and it's not your own. Mm. I want to climb the higher trees, you know? Mm. So yeah. That was just kind of listen. Like I said, he's only seven. He's very little. Um, go through the search history, talk to your older, you talk to some of your friends um, who might have older children, and, you know, maybe she has other children. She didn't specify if it's her youngest child or not, mm. or, you know, and, and speak to her own GP or public health or something, and maybe speak to the, the teacher and say, listen, what's kind of, you know, have a look at what it, there is. Have a look at what they're doing in school, be it in religion, be it uh, CATSD. I don't know what to do with that age of seven anymore. Mm. So it's quite honest. It's all so different. 
But I would not be running to this community. As I said, I want to be a boy when I was younger. You know, I don't mean... I mean, I just because I thought, yeah, they can climb trees. I like I liked to wear jeans. I never really liked skirts. And I love skirts now. Because I couldn't mm. climb properly in friends, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's. I cut my knees when I fell. I just thought skirts were stupid. The the one thing I would say though, Andrea, is that the the internet can be hugely powerful. I know with myself really over powerful. the last few months, I've gone down a rabbit hole about the 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 genesis of of religions and stuff, and I've gone completely. Oh, well, yeah. I can't stop reading about it, and I'm obsessed with it, and so I can see how you'd be Absolutely. gone down a rabbit hole about this, you know. morning and thank you and uh, good morning to you that's uh, Andrea uh, speaking to us there um, let me bring you some reaction to that Fran will you tell Andrea that watching the internet won't make you gay I don't think she said that at any point anyway uh, this letter goes on to say uh, kids are little people and have a mind of their own and by not assigning anything or not giving them a phone won't make them not gay a person is born with this feeling and remember it's the parents made the child so you can't blame the internet my child is non-binary and I'm very gay, uh, very open about it he may have been frightened to tell his parents or uh, had these feelings all the time and then realised that he's gay. Tell that woman it's 2022. And thank you so much for that. Another listener says, what in God's name is a seven-year-old doing looking at the internet? Somebody else on to say, society needs to wake up where little children are concerned. What seven-year-old needs to know this junk? Keep them away from technology. It's destroying their innocence. And back to the previous topic. Topic: uh, That man was completely in the wrong. How dare he confront her? My body, my choice. Maybe uh, she wears it for other reasons. Let's make a reference to a lady who was wearing the burqa and was confronted then by Philly. Um, the listener goes on to say, uh, maybe she feels more confident wearing it. You don't need to have an opinion on everybody else. How dare he? He could come across as being racist or discriminatory, uh, especially if they are visitors to our country. That's an interesting um, aspect. To the, I didn't realise that now, that that might be a possibility, that these might have been visitors minding their own business in Kilkenny. And Philly decided to strike up a conversation. Anyway, we'll take a break. Back in a moment. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Now, I don't want you wasting your money on a text uh, just to put it out there that we don't play um, a lot of uh, texts c- coming to us uh, looking for a certain uh, country and Irish songs and country and Irish artists and the like. We don't play them uh, just as one-off um, situations on the programme. Now, if somebody is into us that is a guest on the programme or if we're talking about something in particular that involves a song, we will play it at that point, but it's not a music programme. It's largely a, a talk programme. We're all 
almost delighted to hear from artists and always wish you well, but just not that you... We don't want you wasting your money. Uh, Fran, if you wear a balaclava or a ski mask, a guard will ask you to remove it so they can see you. A woman concealing her face uh, could be a criminal and shouldn't be allowed to do so, says one of our listeners. Um, I think burkas should not be allowed in Ireland. Irish women must adhere to um, the rules and uh, to cover their bodies in Iran. It says here, okay, so somebody's saying that they shouldn't be allowed at all in Ireland. So what do you think about that? Because as I said to uh, one of our listeners this morning, that in certain countries like France or uh, Belgium and Chad and uh, uh, Switzerland, various other countries, um, it's banned. The the wearing of a burqa is banned. Do you think it's something we should look at here? Um, I think Philly had no business whatsoever interfering with the young lady with the burqa. It was her choice. And uh, that's in from Una who's in Melview uh, this morning, and she goes on to describe Philly in a certain fashion. And <laughs> I might just uh, leave that out if that's okay. I think this uh, face and head covering should be confined to the home and places of worship um, where people of religious uh, faiths are worshipping, um, most definitely not in banks and other places of business. Uh, looking at some of these burqa-wearing people out and about, you wouldn't know what or who is hiding behind or under it. And we also see young guys wandering into places of business wearing hoodies, and this does not look good. Why would any young guy uh, with young blood running through his veins need to wear a hoodie, says this listener. I was once a young guy, and uh, any other uh, youths uh, didn't need this type of garb, and maybe uh, young fellas are much softer nowadays. Uh, it's a hard thing for an ordinary guy to understand, it says here. Well, they, the whole business of the hoodies, it's become a kind of a fashion uh, statement, hasn't it? And it's kind of aping the um, American urban uh, fashion trend, I suppose, over the last uh, decade or so. Um, yeah, a lot of people find them very intimidating. And uh, I know particularly older people, if they see a bunch of uh, young lads in hoodies and stuff, they can be rather uh, scared and intimidated by that. Now, just to, to let you know again that our very final um, gardening slot um, before Christmas is happening today. So if you have a gardening query, will you um, will you log it with us as soon as you can? I'll be speaking to Alton uh, before the end of uh, the programme today. Um, OK, some people are giving me some advice on books. And thank you very much for that. I'm always delighted to get advice on what I should be reading. And uh, being an avid reader, I will add it to my list. Uh, John McGrath in Cashel joins me. John, good morning to you. Well, Brad, how are you doing? I'm very well indeed. What about the burqa, John? How how do you feel about well, it? I turn off the radio there. I can hear you once. <laughs> Chest voices a bit much. <laughs> no problem. Uh, so what about it, John? I think, no, Fran, in all fairness, anyone that's living in the world, the modern world, the cosmopolitan country that we're living in now, should be allowed to do what they want. Mm. But there is rules and regulations in every country that everybody should have to go by. We say... You, you would offer yourself if she went to wherever they come from. She'd have to cover up and do all that. And yes. people go there and they do that and they take off the scarves and take off the gurkhas and all that. Which is against the law out there. And when you're in Rome, you should do what the Romans do. Do you know what I mean? That, yes. that thing seems to be gone. Like, um, them people can walk straight through the airports, untouched, unscathed, unsearched. Do you know what I mean? And that's not right either. And are you saying that this would happen because of their mode of dress, because of the, the, the burqa or the, 
the what is the other one called? The jihab, is it or something? Well, whatever, whatever they call them, is they're completely covered. Yeah. And it amazes me because I, I gave a lot of years in London. Yeah. And uh, it's often flabbergasted me. There's an area there called St John's Wood, and all these people they all live there. Right. And when you be going along, it's there's a school on the corner where all these people go to school. Mm. But all the the people in the in the black shrouds or whatever they're called. Mm. The, they'd all be across the road and the children just run across the road and get it right every time to their own mothers. How did they know? Because they're all dressed the same, you're saying? How? They're all dressed the same, they're all exactly the same with this place and sometimes a gold visor down over it, you know right. what I mean? So, and, and would you go so far as to say that uh, that sort of garbage, that it should be banned here, John, like some other countries? Well, people should be able to do what they like, but if there's a law in the country, you have to go by the law of the land. Yeah, but do you, do you think that law should be introduced here? Because it's not here at the moment. That, you know. It should be introduced because another thing about it is if, if I, the parents of these young children, we say, from 7, 8, 9, 10, whatever age they'd be, wearing the things on their heads. I mean, the grueling to them is to get to school must be unreal. Because children will be... That's interesting, children, yeah. You know what I mean? You know yeah. what I mean? They start... They, they have a terrible time going to school. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like me, it's like me years ago. Mm. I... I applied as a, I got qualified as a pub manager, right? Mm. And I was living in, living in London, and a, a pub came up, and I took it on, and it was down in Brixton. Right. And Brixton, as you know, is all Afro-Caribbean sure. and African, yeah. African people. Yeah. And the manager said to me, and I, I, knew, I wouldn't be one for taking advice, but I took advice from this fella. He said to me, when you go down there, he said, all the people are different to me, to, to you, he said. Don't try and change anything, just join in with them. And where where I had the pub was Crack City. When I went down there, there was, like I said, Afro-Caribbean people. And they were of all different dreadlocks and different hairdos and different scarves and heads and scarves. I just joined in with them. And, and how, did, how did you get on with them, John? I joined in with them, friend. It was the best time I ever had in my life so was far. Was it? Was it? Because I joined in with them. The, the people that come here should join in with us as well. And enjoy the good Irish welcome. But as I say, the country has gone too cosmopolitan now and people are making issues of small things when there's other bigger issues in the world you know and tell me something else because you know again it came up about young lads Irish young lads I'm saying in this case uh, wearing hoodies and, and the like as well and I'm just thinking when you and I were growing up in Cashel and fellas hanging around Calicky's Corner and Buckley's Corner know, there and all of that know, yeah. is, is it all different now do you think it's all different, but anybody in a, in a managerial position with a, a public house or a, a nightclub or anything like that, I would have it exactly the same as the banks. No headgear being worn in and no runners and all that. That might be a bit of a dash to some people. Do you remember back when you were reading in the Nationalist uh, disco in certain place? Uh, no jeans, no, no denims. Jeans. I remember that? well, I remember yeah. well, yeah. Yeah, and and there was war recently because a pub in Dublin wanted to introduce a kind of a dress code in in. But that was there years ago, wasn't it? It was there all the time. But you see, now you see, like you're talking about hoodie tracksuits and whatever you from the subject now and runners. They're yeah. probably three times the, the price of a, a pair of jeans. Yes, absolutely. Now, do you know what yeah, I mean? I know, yeah. So everything everything now is a fashion statement, yeah. and everything through social media and through television advertisement is being rammed down young people's throats. Do you know what I mean? You have to be... It's like that, that moment that was on there a second ago talking about the child wanting to be a girl. That child wouldn't have the mental capacity to understand what he was talking about. Right. He, but... want, he wants to be a girl. It's all because of social media. If you look at 
even any tele- television channel now, and I'm not saying anything about anybody or anybody's creed or sexuality or anything like that, but there's a place called Stop, and we are at it right now, but we don't see it. Everything has been forced. You have to be on the TV, you have to be a gay presenter, you have to be this, you have to be that. Everything is towards that, as if they're the wounded party. They're not the wounded party in this situation because it's gone on too long. We are the wounded party. Normal, well, we say people that are heterosexual. Do you know what I mean? It's being forced on people. That's what it is, and it seems to be... Well, I I suppose that they're they're trying to have inclusivity that mightn't have been there when we were growing up, Uh, you know, John, that you wouldn't have somebody who was obviously gay as the presenter of a programme, you know, you wouldn't have... Now you can have that, and... No, no, they all are. Not you can have. Ah, They all are. They're not all. They're not all gay. You you look at... You must be watching the same channel as me, friend. Yeah, but do you know what I mean? There should be a bit of inclusivity about that. But are you saying it's gone too far? There's too... Yeah, everything has been forced into young minds. We're all being woke. and Yes, it's everything has been forced into young minds. And you know what, I, you know what I'm taking on to doing? One day a week, no phone. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good one. Now, if yeah. you try... Well, you're, you're in a different position to me. No, but you're dead right. I need to look at that. I, I sometimes look at how much time I've spent on the phone. You know the way the phone will tell you that. And it's frightening. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. well, you, you, you try and leave, uh, on your day off, just leave your phone at home. Yeah. And you'll find that you'll converse with people differently. I go everywhere by bus nowadays. And there's going to be talking people on the bus and everybody's on the phone. Nobody's talking. Nobody asks you how you keep it, what's the weather like, or anything like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I only went down the road to the venue for something to eat there last week and I forgot my phone and I was panicked, John. I was absolutely panicked. You won't you be searching and you'd look for it again. I know, I was five minutes away from home for out for an hour and I was panicking because I didn't have my phone. Yeah. You know? But going on, going back to what we were talking about. Yeah. Um, there's an area now in, in, in Luton, in Bedfordshire, just 40 miles north of Trafalgar Square now. Mm. And these people that we were talking about with the Gurkhas and this, that, with the, the Burkhas, is that what they call them? Yeah, Burkhas. The, yeah. the veils over yeah. heads, we call them. Um, there's an area there in Luton, and I've seen recently that uh, all, a lot of these people are living in that area, and they have a market area. And the local people that are born and bred English people can't go down into there unless they have one of them on them or they start throwing apples and oranges and baiting them out of the place. Sometimes even baseball bats. So- if there's any. any any sign of flesh women's flesh be shown in that area right Th- that would so be it, offensive to them to the point that they would be yeah, but if they violent about them, it if they live yes there is if they live if they live, want to live under them laws go back to where them laws are in power yeah you know, the Irish welcome has got too big you have Michal Mert and Leo Varadkar up there they put money up for this and money up for that uh, war torn countries they've been the hero on the world stage for generosity, the Irish welcome and the generosity of the Irish people. What they should do is take a closer look at people, even in the town of Cashel, the town of Torrens, even in Tipperary, all the towns in Tipperary I'm talking about. They should take a look at all the people that are homeless there, that are natives of this country and have their own children and they bloody well half starving and no roof over their heads. Women living in cows with two children and trying to get them to school as well and if they don't get them to school they're going to get trouble. What's that about? They should look after the home first. And, you know, I think you're advising what an awful lot of people out there are thinking, John, but, you know, there's a whole cohort of people that would say then that you're being 
racist, you're being unkind, you're being all of that, you know, you're not embracing people from an unfortunate situation like Ukraine. France, charity begins at home. How can you not put bread on your own table and keep your own family? You can't be carrying the people next door if you don't have it for your own. Do you know what I mean? Well, Leo Varadkar told me on this uh, programme that the bill for the Ukrainian effort is about two billion. He'd be better off building a load of houses for the, the homeless Irish people that are here and help to create those out. And they probably most of them worked hard all their life, some of them middle-aged, and they're homeless now, all because of the banks and collapses of money and this, that mm. and the other. And you don't mind, John, how you're seen by voicing that, even though other people might be thinking it. They can think whatever they like, Fran. I'm only saying, what I, I can only speak my own mind. What other people, I'm entitled to my opinion as they are. You know what I mean? And another thing... That and was why do you think that opinion is not heard on national radio, for example? Because people, people hide behind it. People hide, hide behind it. And they, they, they just won't come out and say what the state of affairs is. You read the papers, you go on social media. It's the same thing, but it's a hidden agenda. It's an undercurrent all the time. It's about time it was brought forward. The people that are leading this country are up there doing the great thing, rubbing shoulders with the mighty powers of the world. They're decency this and they're decency that, giving them all the money. They what, should look after their own at home. What would, you, what would you say to somebody who is saying that John manages to be racist and homophobic in the same conversation? They can say whatever they like. I'm entitled to my opinion as they are. Hmm. But I'm saying what's there on the place. If there's spuds, bacon and cabbage on the place, it's not going to be anything else. It's exactly what it says on the tin. Spuds, bacon and cabbage. And another, another thing that you said there, and uh, one of your listeners yesterday morning, I was actually travelling in a bus at the time, uh, he said, your man that rang in first that brought on this subject about the girl with the veil on her head. F- Philly, that. yes, Philly. Yeah, Philly. Yeah. They could have been visitors, fair enough. They can do whatever they want. And he said, what happened to what the good, the good book says and our law says, love thy neighbour. Well, we're living in a society now that you wouldn't even know who your neighbour is. Did you ever think about that one? It's a very good point. That's yeah, a very good, so like, so uh, we don't know them, so how can we love them? Yes, yeah, and they wouldn't even salute you. And anybody, if you're living in the council estate as I do, they could land anyone in beside you. They might even speak the same language, not that I have a problem with that. But where's the love thy neighbour? It's gone out the window because of the welcome, the Irish welcome. All right, John. Well, look, really good to talk to you as always. And of course yeah. you're entitled to your opinion. And thanks for coming on with us, John. <laughs> Good luck, John. Good luck, John. John Mack in Cashel there. Um, 1800-938-007. The text and WhatsApp is always 3 The Imro Radio Award winning tip today. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. Test drive the all-new Peugeot 2008 compact SUV at Slattery's Garage, puck on. Choose from petrol, diesel or fully electric. Slattery'sGarage.ie Oh, you're very welcome back. Uh, Patrick was on to say, well said to John Mack. I completely agree with him. Another listener saying, uh, John from Casual is 100% correct. As far as gay people on radio and TV is concerned, you have a lot better chance of getting a job if you're gay. Fair play to John. I'm not sure uh, about that. Um, Yeah, uh, now you have me thinking, you see. You have me thinking at this point. Uh, Let me see what else we're getting in on this. Um, As I said before, 
uh, Fran, um, do, 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 we should look after our own, as every town in Ireland has poor homeless people begging. Uh, regards that man yesterday asking the woman why she was wearing the veil. Um, um, okay, the kids should be 12 before they get Android phones. And now the internet is like, I'm, I'm not quite sure what that is, Barbara. I'll have to read through that again, but thank you indeed. 083 311 I agree 100% with John McGrath. He's only saying what everybody else is thinking, says one of our listeners. Somebody else saying, fair play to John. He's the only person brave enough to say what we're all thinking. That's it from another listener. Somebody else saying, Fran, that man is right. Charity begins at home. Uh, we should look after our own. And uh, cheers to John for speaking out, says Marie. Somebody not too happy with John, saying he needs to get a life. Another listener saying John is not being racist. He's speaking the truth and what most people are thinking. A third listener saying, Fran, that man is making so much sense. Why can't people just see what is going on? All right, and that's just a taste of what we're getting so far. Kate joins me now. Kate, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. Really good to talk to you today, Kate. Um, do I get... Are you a carer, Kate? That's right, and I was on the radio on uh, Wednesday morning after the budget, and between the highs and lows of the actual um, uh, reading of the budget, uh, I forgot to acknowledge a person who was absolutely pivotal in getting the, the, the fuel allowance because it has taken me so many years, and I had lobbied myself... Uh, through ringing the Department of um, uh, Social Protection and uh, the Minister's uh, uh, constituency office there in uh, Kevin Monaghan because I have the Kevin Monaghan ties. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the person that I need to acknowledge is Councillor Michael Murphy mm-hmm. because Michael Murphy uh, was the very person who thought of the whole thing and decided, you know, the means threshold needed to be extended from 125 to 200 euros. And that's what got it over the line, Fran. Do you, do you believe I, that? You do, Kate, yes. Well, I do because I, I was in mm. touch with him all yeah. the time okay. and uh, he, he lobbied and lobbied and I, I was the doubting Thomas and a few days before that I, I sent him a text message and said, oh, but all the things that, that uh, Heather Humphreys is announcing, I think we're out of it altogether because we're trying through the Carers Association, but that wasn't uh, a runner at all So for, for that aspect of things. So that was done, and uh, he was adamant that it could be done. And he sent me back a text message to say, um, wait until the day of the budget. And yes, he delivered. He absolutely delivered. And I have to say, he's a man of immense talent, and he has great ideas. And this is is testimony to what he was able to do. He lobbied the Minister for Finance and Minister Humphreys as well, and I know that for a fact. And the situation that pertains now is, 81,000 people are in as new claimants now for the, the, the fuel allowance. And will you and explain to people who are not carers the difference that that makes, Kate? Oh, it makes a huge difference, yeah. Fran, because um, whatever amount the carers allowance is, it can be paid. I'm new to this, you see, yes. because I've been trying for years and without success. So um, it means that uh, when September comes, one can decide, as far as I know, you can decide to get it in two amounts, and I don't know what the exact amount is now mm. because it's go, it's going up. For for claimants like myself, it won't uh, uh, start until uh, January mm. uh, 2023. What it will mean, you know, uh, a, a, a cushion 
for us in that with all the price increases, I think it's 33 euros a week or mm. something it has mm. been. I'm not sure if that goes up by 12 euros or not. But um, when, when the time comes, you know, if, if one wants to stay during the summertime, when one gets the, the actual um, carers grant, you could put the money towards the, towards the kerosene in your, in your oil tank. Sure, um, and, and you see, you would have, the, you would have the, the, the cushion, as I said, you would have then coming along uh, in September, you would know that you would have the amount of money there uh, towards fuel. So, right. so um, there's some certainty, a, I suppose. There would be a certainty to it, and it would mean that if if the kerosene is it always gets cheaper at a, a summertime. Mm. So uh, mm. you could you could actually do it, get it done in in the in the uh, summer months, and you'd have it yes. uh, at a cheaper rate. A lot, so a lot of people very um, uh, annoyed and frustrated though that kerosene and oil, oil, heating oil in general um, was not looked at in the budget uh, in terms oh, of price exactly. because it's yeah, gone yeah. it's gone through the roof i mean i know our own kerosene bill has gone through the roof anyway yes yeah, yeah. it's actually around between 635 and 650 euros i priced yesterday uh, for 500 uh, liters so and how much more expensive is that well it was uh, 564 uh, for I think it was seven hundred liters now last year, right. April I think of last year. Wow. So I mean that's an awful difference in just, price. Yeah, it it's huge. And then the coal has gone up as well. It's thirty-five to forty euros for forty kilos. You know that's what it is. Uh, super therm is what we use because it's smokeless and it's very very good. What I need to I need to to reiterate uh, the 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 uh, the unwavering faith uh, that. Um, Michael Murphy, as as a, a lobbyist, has has been. Well, isn't you that, know, isn't to, it great to, to be able to say to that say that? Because we get a lot of negativity about politicians, and we get an awful lot of yeah. people who are cynical about them and one thing and another. Yeah. But but your experience well, anyway has been different. Yeah. It mm. has. Yeah, I mm. have to say with Michael Murphy. Now I did ring other councillors about other things as well, mm-hmm. and one actually said to me, "I want to hold on to my seat." Now that was not an answer for me. It was a problem, you know. It was another problem, and that's the answer I was right. given. And I, 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 I don't want else, you to give names to me, but well, a, 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 sit, never, a never, sitting councillor said that to you. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Must look after my own seat, and that's it. And another councillor I rang August two thousand and twenty-one, and I got just a one-line answer. And I was he he told me he'd ring me back again when he would research the the things I was asking about, and. Uh, I never heard from him again. That's being honest about it. But Michael Murphy, I, I have, I'm tormented about all different aspects of things. And he will always come back. I have to say, hand and heart, I'm telling the honest truth. Okay. He will come back and he will, he will text and he will say, I'm working on that. Give me some time and we'll see what I can do about it. And then he will come back and say, this is what I've come up with now. And he's agreed to come up with ideas. Okay. He came up with that and, and said, listen, sure, if the means test was, was uh, uh, the threshold was extended, wouldn't it sort out a lot of people? And it did. Right, it's very, very good. And, you, you, and just for clarity, you're not related to Michael and you have no... I have no... no. I have no not at all. Okay. No relationship. And you, you'll forgive me for saying that, but I just, just for clarity, Kate, I'm sure you no, don't mind. There is, yes. there is no link at all. Yes. No link okay. at all. And it just... Uh, he is also yes. he's also come through with, with, with the plaza in Clonmel, mm-hmm. and there was a site there at Chadwick's there for twenty about twenty five mm-hmm. years, 
we pass by it on a Friday if we're going to Clonmel mm-hmm. and see it derelict. And now we will have a legal uh, uh, there at least will be used. You know, right. it was there. All right. Well, I'm sure other councillors would would say that they played a, a hand in that as well. But you make your point extremely. Yes. We got such yes. a great reaction to you being on with us last week, Kate. And thank you so much for coming on with me again. Well, you're quite welcome. But as I said, I have no links at all with Michael Murphy other than his professional advice and, you know, uh, lobbying him. And he definitely lobbied and said, we can get this through if possible at all. I will do my best. And he did his best. And I'm very thankful, to be quite honest with you. It is a great uh, bonus to me and uh, certainly to all those, you know, uh, raising it. For the few euros extra that it was over the limit, he has gotten it through then to the 200 euros. For well, those under under 70 and those over 70, a couple can earn a 1,000 euros. All right. But I'm also, ad- I'm also on about the fact that carers are being ignored uh, in general and that really carers, the means test for carers, if they're family members, say, I look after my husband, but for those that are, um, you know, that... Say, if I got, got became ill, my family would not would be precluded because of the income of uh, threshold there. And I think that should be, uh, the income threshold for family carers uh, uh, should be All right. Abolished. Kate, I must leave it there because I must, I must head to news. But thanks uh, very much indeed for coming on with us uh, today. Uh, news and information is on the way. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Welcome back to uh, Tip Today. Yeah, I know I'm still a bit hoarse. Apologies uh, about that. As Pat Short said, I got a bad old knockout. And there's still elements of it still there, but thank you. Um, 083 311 for your text and WhatsApp. You can speak to Emma uh, for no cost, 1800-938-007. Where's the fuel allowance for workers, Fran? Where are the benefits for workers? People that don't work are getting a lump sum of child benefits and a lump sum for fuel allowance. But we have to go to work and get taxed a fortune to fund all of these allowances. James is in full flight today. He says calling people racist or homophobic is a lazy way out of debating an issue by stupid people who, when called out on their woke populist rubbish, just turn to racist to shut down a conversation. These people uh, using these slurs are dangerous, disingenuous people. This is James on 083 311 Just listening, uh, Fran, and uh, about the carers' allowance and it's not a qualifying payment for fuel allowance. And uh, with respect to Kate, it's the lobbying by Family Carers Ireland that got the means test for the allowance. And uh, that's making uh, reference to uh, Kate speaking to me about Councillor uh, Michael Murphy. Well, I'm sure, you know, even Richie would agree, Richie Malloy would agree, I suppose, that it's, it's probably a group of people working very hard um, to get these changes made. Um, somebody else saying Michael Murphy was so helpful uh, to me to get support for my special needs son. Um, tell Philly to confront an Irish woman who's wearing a pyjamas and see what would happen. 
<laughs> yeah, that would be interesting, all right. Uh, put uh, Kate in charge of a carers association. We would get uh, information about what carers are entitled to. Great to listen to Kate, it says here. And that's uh, it for now. 083-311-3311. Now, Chloe, well, a couple of Chloe's made contact with us uh, yesterday on the show, but one in particular told us an incredibly sad story indeed about how she is fighting to get approved for disability allowance after suffering a stroke at the age of 25 while pregnant with her second child. She is unable to work because of the effects of the stroke and also she has mental health issues at this point with uh, depression and uh, anxiety and all of that. But she's still deemed fit to work by the department. Now, the messages that we got from listeners, sadly, would show that this fight for allowance is not uncommon. And a great friend of the show and a friend of mine is Bonnie, who joins me now. Bonnie, good morning to you. Good morning, friend. How are you today? I'm very well indeed. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us, because even though you and I had spoken several times, Bonnie, um, I didn't realise this. Would you mind sharing the story with the with the listeners? Yeah, friend, I was... Um, well, actually, I worked on my life, ran up to 2010 when I got this uh, bolt out of the blue that I had to have heart surgery. Mm. And um, we were just coming into the... Was the, the crash was coming starting to happen around that time as well. But anyway, um, I went, had a surgery, and was home. And um, I'm sorry, just to clarify, you were working at this point. Uh, I was working at this yes. point, Fran, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, in November 2010, I went to hospital and had the, the surgery, open heart surgery. And while I was in hospital, I lost my job. But um, through the crash. But I came home then, and I was put on this thing, I think Chloe was talking about yesterday too about um, illness benefit. Yes. Now yeah. you know when you're when you're working all your life, you just work and you get paid and you, you know very little. I know I know very little about entitlements mm. or anything anyway. Mm. So I was on that and sort just about surviving. I had two young fellas, two boys here, the two lads that were in college. And can you remember uh, what that payment was at that time, Bonnie? I can't, friend. Yeah. I really can't. Yeah. I, I can't remember. I remember what happened afterwards. Right, but it was a uh, modest payment anyway, yeah. It was, yeah. Fran, yeah. yeah. It was very modest, Fran, yeah, yeah, very modest. But I was getting by. And two years then went by, and next thing, gone, cut. I went one day to see how a few bob and had nothing. And I got no word about this being cut, so I didn't know where to turn to. So I, I think I went to, you know, it's 10 years ago now, I think I went to Citizen's Advice or something, and uh, I went to a... TD, and uh, I had to furnish then letters from. They were saying to me, "You, you, you're, you're two years after your surgery now. You, you, you should be able to work. You can work." My doctor here was saying to me, "No, you can't. You cannot go back and do what you were doing before in the building trade. You, you know, you yeah. just can't do that after your, after what you've been through." So they told me, you know, there's nothing there for you. But you were deemed fit to work by the department who are not medically yes. qualified, and your doctor telling you, no. You, you yeah, but can't. they never, you see, Fran, they never, the Department of Social Protection, as they call it, into Social Welfare, and they never said to me, um, you know, we're going to put you before a referee or we go before a medical doctor and have and be examined. They never asked me, sir. They never asked me to go see anybody. They just made a decision. They made a decision, exactly, Fran. They made a decision. And um, eventually, anyway, I had to go to this, was it a, I can't, it might have the names right, supplementary yeah. welfare officer. Yes, yeah. And I was two years away, I see it this day, I was, was a two-year gap between this and 
when I was entitled to a state my state a state pension. Yeah. You know. So I had to fill that gap and um they gave me I think it was one hundred and sixty euros a week. Uh to live on. To live on? Absolutely, yeah. One hundred and sixty euro, yeah. But how yeah. how did you manage? Well Fran it was very hard to with the help of family and friends and I had got a few bobs statutory redundancy and that's what I lived on that drained away too over as I said with two lads in college and trying to live here at home, you know, pay all the bills and everything. And um then they got on to me again, uh to to furnish a letters from my doctor, from my uh consultant and from the surgeon and the cardiologist. I had to go get letters from them that I wasn't able to work and that's what I had to do. And I got the T D involved in it then and that person did absolutely nothing for me. Absolutely had no interest in in my case at all. But that's that's <laughs> so um as I said, Fran, I reached pension age then and I that's where I am now. But and and uh, you, you know you're a very together fellow and a very smart fellow, Bonnie. Did did it play on your did it play on your mind? Did it? Oh, I did, Fran. Of course. It w- did, was it a very dark time for you? Is what I'm saying. As it was, it was, Fran, because I was after having awful trouble with work as well. Um, I was 20 years in in this job that I was at. I was doing house maintenance for a company, and I was 20 years with them, and. Um, they told us they had no assets to pay us redundancy. It was only statutory redundancy we would get, and it took a long time to get that sorted out. So we yeah. were being told very little. We were finding out more from the media than we were from the, the company themselves, you know? So you had that on top of everything I else? I had that, and that was going on maybe a few months after surgery and everything, you know? And I tried to do a bit of rehab and... And you, you needn't tell me which TD it was, but you got literally no help. No, I didn't, Fran. I, I, um, he sent, and I always remember this. This he sent me a letter in June 2013, uh, with a copy of the letter that he was sending to the medical assessor in the department. And uh, at the bottom of the letter, he said to me, "You'll be hearing from me in a number of weeks." And that was June 2013, and I never heard from that TD since. At all. No. No, but I, I, I did have a word with he, his his van pulled up outside the door here one day during the last general election, and I thought I was hoping he'd be with him, but he wasn't. But I, I had a word in the ear of a few of his canvassers who came to the door. Right. Know. So you, you you made your feelings clear, as they say. Uh, quite clear, Fran. Quite right. clear. I did. And you I did. did you didn't vote for him, I guess. <laughs> no, and and the thing about was, Fran, hmm. when he came canvassed in the previous election, he got four number ones in this house. I got it. But that, that's, that's then, that was the end of that. And, you know, you know the amazing would you have been of the opinion that maybe this might have been cleared up at this stage, then that maybe, you know, 12 years later that somebody might have a better or a different experience? But you heard yesterday with that young lady. Absolutely, Fran. I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. The very but same not, experience, like. The very same, Fran. Yeah, that's, that's why I, 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 I contacted the show. Uh, I could relate to what Chloe was, was actually saying and what she's going through. It was an awful time, I have to say that. I mean, I was recovering physically, I was recovering okay, but this thing of the department, you know, telling me, you know, you're you're fit for work. As I said, no medical, never sent to a medical assessor to them. They were, they just wouldn't take my word and wouldn't take the word of my doctor or my cardiologist or my surgeon. 
But telling me, I, you, you're, yeah, you're, you're fit to work. You're, your surgery now, you're over your surgery, so it's time to get back out into. And and this was doing along with that Fran, you know, we were the crash had 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 happened. Of course, at this time. yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think Fran, if you if you anyone with the common sense, if you're working forty four years, Fran, and you're working all your life, I don't think you want to stop work all of a sudden for the sake of stopping. There must be something wrong with you when you stop working. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's that, the, yeah. Absolutely, and you'd imagine that that should be looked at uh, as well. Yeah, you can, would. I know. Can I, sense. can I ask you about your personal dignity? Because that notice, notion of going to somebody who is a, I don't know, do you call them a supplementary welfare officer or whatever? Yeah, um, incredible and, friend. And I'm sure they're fine people and stuff, but you have to go and make your case to yeah, them. Yeah, friend, yeah. What, friend what was that like? Uh, it wasn't nice, friend, to be honest with you. You know, again, I go back and I make the point, friend. You see, you. You work all your life and you get paid every every weekend, every Friday, whatever Thursday or Friday. Yeah. And and that's all you that's the work you that's the kind of we are, most people are. They just want to work. And all of a sudden here you're you feel like you're crawling to some of these people for for, for somebody to help. Uh, there's some people I know that do it all their lives, but that's a different story. But oh it does yeah, Fran, I did it wasn't nice. It wasn't nice, Fran. And it sounds, Bonnie, if you don't want me saying so, that it'll stay with you as an experience, you know, as a... Oh, sure, absolutely, friend. Yeah. I mean, as I said, regarding trying to get help from everyone, I, I still think that 10 years, well, what is it, that 10, 12 years later now, friend, down the road, and I could, I can remember most of it as clear as ABC, you know, and I came back to me very much so, yes, when Chloe was was telling her story to you, you know, and like I said, it's no different. For some sense, I don't understand what kind of people are into some of those departments. You know, I really don't. Um, yeah, now I suppose uh, they have a certain job to do, but it's... I know that, Fran, but I do remember when I was dealing with them, Fran. Um, I sent, I think it was five registered letters I sent to some of the, one of the departments, which was down in Longford. Yeah. And I rang one day, and I had no reply. They told me they never received them. But I said, someone must have signed for these letters. They were registered, yes. Yeah, they were registered. I said, registered. we're all registered letters. Oh, she said, they could have went, could have went into her own box, she said. and they just. So, in fairness to that lady I spoke to, she gave me her name that day, and she said to me, in future, she said, when you ring in this office, look for me. And I remember it was Aoife, I think Aoife was her name. Look for Aoife, I think it was Aoife Donnelly was her name. Look for me, she said. And in fairness, that girl dealt with me afterwards all the time and was very good to me. So I met one. I met one caring human being in there, but the rest of them they didn't give a damn, friend. They really didn't give a damn. If I didn't get tokens, friend, it didn't, it didn't. It didn't bother them. And what was their attitude to you like, with the exception of the lady you mentioned? Um, oh, very just very being officious, just being very officious, using the same old language the whole time. You know, using the same old language. We'll send out a form, and you'll fill up the form, and you return the form to this office, and right. it will be dealt with. And as a yeah. hard worker all your life, you would have never envisaged yourself in that predicament, I guess, you know, to have to... Sure, I, I didn't, friend, because maybe, especially when you're young anyway, I suppose you take your health for granted, yeah, maybe a bit, I but I didn't abuse yeah. myself in that, that way, yeah. but this just happened out, this came, the heart surgery came out of the blue, friend, you know, all within a month or so, so, I mean, I was thrown into it, and uh, no, no, it's it, it just... It just happened, and, and I had to try and deal with it then when it ha- as it happened. And But that was bad enough. But when 
it's in the two years up and they give you no notice. They give you no notice whatsoever. They're, they're, see, I didn't know. I thought this illness benefit was, was ongoing. Yes. But didn't realise two years, it's cut. That's it. And what is it? I don't have a full understanding of it, Bonnie. What, is it based on you paying stamps for X amount of time? Is it? Does that play some part I, in it? I'm not sure, Fran. I don't think so, Fran. I think it's just a two-year period. I wouldn't be full, I wouldn't be... 100% sure of that, no, friend. Right. But I just think it's a, it, it's it has a, a natural year. cutoff point for everybody. Yeah, I think so, friend. And I then it has to be examined, I guess, and looked at. It has to be examined then again, yeah. Okay. And yeah, 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 I think so, friend. Yeah, I think, yeah. Right. Funnily yeah. enough, when you Google um, that payment and uh, the payment that we're talking about that you would be applying for, um, it's, it's very rarely that people are granted it, the disability payment. Oh, I say so, Fran. Yeah, yeah, very, very. But yeah. I mean, that actually comes up when you Google it. It's it's rarely that, right? that people are granted. Yeah, which I yeah. I was surprised yeah. at as well. Yeah, I said yeah. The percent the high percentages are are turned down. Yeah, for that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's it's yeah. interesting. Bonnie, really good to talk to you today, um, and we wish you well, Bonnie. Always a pleasure. Frank, can I mention one more thing to you there? Yes, please do. Uh, just at the start of your show this morning, I heard you mention about on board Planola. Yes. And um, that's the board. The board are not stepping down or being asked. Yes, to step down, correct, yes. correct. Which is because I think it's crazy. But um, I have an interest there, and waiting for a, a decision on an appeal that was made. Um, I'm involved here in the board of management of our primary school, Saint Michael's here in Clark Jordan. Yeah. And Ayer put in an application there a couple of years ago to erect a monopole with dishes and antennas on it, right beside the primary school. Mm. Now, if I listen to this, within three meters of a boundary wall to the school. Three metres. Because they own a plot of land there. So, there's a residential area, they all objected, the school objected, the creche objected, and to our disappointment, Tiberi County Council granted the plan of permission. So, the school, the Board of Management of St. Michael's, uh, appealed it to on board Planola. So, we're awaiting an outcome on that with great interest, you know, and when when is that outcome due, Bonnie? Oh, she would not know, Fran. We know. have sent in the objection to that. I'd say it's gone seven or eight months. Uh, two on board Planola. Yeah. Uh, so we're waiting with great interest. Now, I'm sure you read all this before where, I can't think of his name. Now, who was the CEO that was on board Planola? That guy that resigned. That resigned there. I can't think of his name. Yeah, but, Paul. But he... Um, he overturned, I think it was over 93% of the right. planning. I, I can't get into that kind of stats unless that I have certainly of it, as you can imagine, Bonnie, yeah, I know, on, the, on, I know, the, on yeah. the radio. I know. But, but you would be concerned about the makeup of that board, I guess, would you? Oh, very much so, Fran. Yeah. Very much so. Very, very much so. Well, well, when yeah. you when you consider that the minister is very anxious that they would regain, as he put it, regain public uh, credibility and, and uh, public belief in yeah. on board planning, you'd imagine that that would be necessary for an overturn of, of the board. But look, there you are. We'll, we'll, be, day, we'll be watching day. that result with great interest, Bonnie. Same here, friend. Right. Same here. Look after yourself, Bonnie, and Gurmina Mahagat. Uh, thank you. Bye-bye to you now. That's Bonnie Hayes there uh, speaking to us from Cluck Jordan today. 1800-938-007. The text and WhatsApp is 83 311 Fran, I agree with Bonnie. Um, what kind of people work in certain departments? I had it with the social welfare um, person, his manner would have uh, been a bit off to say the least and not very professional uh, there's no community welfare officer now at all, it's very centralised, this is one of uh, our listeners 
Um, just how voluntary is it for these uh, women and girls to wear burqas? I happened to be in a social welfare office recently and a lady wearing a burqa uh, before me in the queue with her husband. And when she was slow answering questions from the receptionist, he kept poking her in the side with his car keys. And when the lady working there called on him to stop, he went berserk. How dare a, women sp- a woman speak to him like that? And he had to be restrained by security staff. And uh, a lot of people came from... Uh, very different customs to ourselves but they're here in Ireland this is just not acceptable says Joe who is in Newtown today. Do you know something else that occurred to me and it certainly will bring back memories to people of Cashel but I'm sure other towns as well. I remember when I was a young lad in Cashel that people had to go, I mean there was great poverty huge poverty in aspects of, of Cashel and people had to go begging and I mean literally begging to a kind of a supplementary welfare officer. I remember his name and I won't give out the name but I'm sure the people of Cashel remember well who I'm talking about. And their dignity had to be put in their pocket to go and approach this guy for money just to get them by from from one couple of days to uh, an next and they were treated so badly. Anyway, the memory's flooding back to me this morning. We'll take a break. Back in a moment. The Imro Radio Award-winning Tip Today. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. Test drive the all-new Peugeot 2008 compact SUV at Slattery's Garage, puck on. Choose from petrol, diesel or fully electric. Slattery'sGarage.ie Now we're aware about the devastating effects of domestic abuse and uh, much of that focus is often placed on young Uh, female victims of uh, abuse, but there is a worrying rise in the number of men over the age of 60 seeking help for abuse. And joining me now is Derek Smith, who is supervisor of the Men's Development Network. Derek, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. Thanks for having me on, yeah? Uh, Really good to talk to you today. First of all, would you just tell me a bit about the Men's Development Network, Derek? What exactly is that? Well, it's a charity organisation that began in the 90s and its main trust was to create more spaces uh, for um, new conversations with men and um, advocating for social change and greater gender equality. And you've noticed a significant rise in the number of calls for men 60 plus who are uh, victims of abuse, Derek. That's right. Yeah, yeah. There's been a significant increase in the last few months um, of men of, um, in that age group, you know. And one call um, particularly um, stands out in my mind. He said um, he's been married for um, 30 years, and he said I've been making excuses for 30 years. And he only he heard a conversation on the radio, and there was people discussing coercive control mm. and he said you know maybe he said I could find out to see if there was support there for men and was it in his case was a coercive control was it um, as opposed to it being physically violent in some way well in this particular case Fran it was both actually was it because both? Yeah. it was mainly a coercive control down through the years like where are you going what are you doing what time mm. are you going to be back at yes uh, all of that sort, and there was financial control as well. But there was one incident um, he was telling me about, and he said he was going out with a friend, and he said, I didn't go out very often, he said, 
he was going out with his friend anyway, and he was just going out the door, and his partner kicked him. You know? I get And he said it was like, it was so sore for weeks. He said that he, he'd never forget it, you know? Right. And this was an elderly man at this point. Well, yeah, he's, he, he's, um, he was in his, in his late 60s. Right, okay. Late 60s. But for more than 30 years he had been um, a victim of this in some way. Yeah. As he said himself, he said, I've been making excuses for, for over 30 years. And the rise in the number of calls, Derek, is that because maybe these men feel they can talk about this at this point or is it a genuine increase in the numbers? Well, I think definitely um, with more awareness around the, the subject, um, men feel that they can talk about it. They are beginning to realise that there is support there. Like on the on the National Male Advice Line, we have there's six of us, and we're you know fully trained counsellors, and we know how to listen. And the conversations are totally confidential. Is there a lot of shame involved uh, with the, with these men, Derek? There is. Yeah, there, there can be quite a quite a bit of shame involved because they feel they shouldn't be in this situation. They should know how to handle it. Um, I shouldn't. Uh, I shouldn't feel like this. I mean, you know, when you're trying to deal with that over a number of years, you know, it can it, it can have a huge impact on you. And like, it really does help. And believe me, I know because I'm on the line every week myself. It really does help to talk to somebody because it releases some of that suppressed emotion, you know. And are you, I mean, is it like some helplines that you're not in the business of giving advice, you're there to listen? Or can you give advice, Derek? Yeah, no, like, I mean, we certainly can give advice. Can you? Okay. We'll say on the National Advice Line, we're we're fully trained counsellors. But we don't, it's not a counselling service and we can give advice. Like, I mean, after we're saying, you know, about a half an hour listening to the caller and letting him explain about his experience, we can signpost him on then to, you know, if it's legal advice or we also can offer counselling as well. We can offer face-to-face counselling and online counselling so we can reach you know, anybody in the 26 counties. Is there any place for the... I mean, if 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 a situation escalates to the point that the, the, the man's life might be, you know, in question in some way, is there anywhere for men to go in that situation? Well, there is no refuge in Ireland for men. Um, that, that's a fact but we can we, we, we say we would have contacts in an emergency accommodation crisis but it would have to be an emergency situation right and but if, is if there was re- anybody sorry if there I was anybody if, if anybody felt in danger like I mean I would strongly recommend that they call into the guard station right. and have a and have a conversation with the guards because they're very, very helpful. And I'm sure they are, but it would be very difficult, I would imagine, for a man to do that. Um. Yes, I mean, it, it, it can be, but also, like, 
you know, the, the, the line is a 1-800 number. It's a free phone number. And the conversation is totally confidential. So, like, if anybody wanted to um, call us, it's a free phone number. And the line is open every day, right. seven days a week. Will you give me that number, Derek? Yeah, it's one eight hundred. Yeah, And I know, like, we know how difficult it can be to make that first call. But there is help and support yeah. 1800-816-588 because I'm conscious there may be people listening to us in the, the, the on the radio this morning that may be in this position, Derek, and could do with some help and advice, maybe. Absolutely, because that, that man I referred to earlier on, he heard a conversation on the radio. I think it was, he was in his car yes. and he heard people talking about it. And that's what um, spurred him on to make that call. Right, and you're not and alone, and there's no need to be shamed about that, shameful about this, none whatsoever. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, a hundred percent. You're certainly not the only one. And although you, you know, although we feel lonely, we're never alone. Derek, really good to talk to you today, and congratulations on some great work. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good, good morning, John. It's Derek Smith there, supervisor of the Men's Development Network. And that number, once again, if you're affected by anything that we've been speaking about there, is 1800-816-588. If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call TIP today on 1-800-938-007. The Imro Radio Award-winning Tip Today. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. Test drive the all-new Peugeot 2008 compact SUV at Slattery's Garage, puck on. Choose from petrol, diesel or fully electric. Slattery'sGarage.ie Now, welcome back to uh, Tip Today. Fran, wouldn't you think some of Tipperary's TDs would be ringing in saying they're going to do something about all of this. They're all, and it uses a certain word. And this person goes on to say, pardon my language, Fran. You're well pardoned indeed. Carmel, thank you for that. Um, it's a lovely message. I completely agree with you, by the way, Carmel. But if you don't mind, I won't uh, I won't read it out because already I'm getting complaints this morning that I'm seen to be um, um, uh, advocating a certain politician above others and stuff. So that would get me into complete trouble. But I do go along with you, Carmel. And uh, thank you very much indeed for that. 1800-938-007. Fran, I'm astonished that you're astonished at what people go through with social welfare. Irish people don't know what they're entitled to and how things work. If you're out sick this year for a length of time and return to work and out sick in two years' time, they take what you got from social welfare as your income and you get less. And people don't know this. TDs can't do anything for you, says one of uh, our listeners. Yeah, it's interesting. And and you're right. I probably shouldn't be astonished at the plight that some people find themselves uh, in. But would you not agree that probably you don't realise until you're in the middle of a situation like Chloe or indeed what happened to Bonnie, you don't realise really, I suppose, what's uh, going on. Um, I think Philly had no business whatsoever interfering with that lady and that's going back to our Burka uh, story as well um, where Philly confronted the couple, uh, the lady wearing the burqa and uh, indeed her husband as well in a, I think it was a shopping centre in... uh, 
in Kilkenny, if uh, memory serves me uh, correct as well. One of our listeners on to say, Fran, every rural town is closing down with rates, uh, no pubs, butcher shops, uh, guardies, stations, uh, creameries, army barracks, all closed under the fall and the Gael governments. And uh, they gave two billion to house Ukrainian refugees. It's a great show, Fran, and great uh, topics as well. Um, okay, and Patrick on as well to say how much he agrees with uh, John Mack, who certainly um, has people talking this morning with his contribution to uh, the show as well. Um, Alan was on to say, ban the burqa in Ireland. You need to take a motorbike helmet off if you enter a bank. It could be a security risk, says one of uh, our listeners. And again, we wonder, how do you feel about that? 1800 938 007, the text and WhatsApp is 083-311-3311. Fran, you comment about the the dreaded welfare officer. Eric Cashel has brought back some very unhappy memories of the 1950s. Practically all the young people on the council estate where I lived had to go to England because there were absolutely nothing here for them. And I don't care what the financial nationalists say, only for England, an awful lot of people in this country, would have starved with the hunger and even further back, uh, my grandparents, along with their two young children, had to go to England in 1939, just as the Second World War was starting. Why? According to my father, because they were starving with the hunger. Isn't that uh, amazing? A lot of memories coming back to a lot of people uh, today. Yeah, I, I, I'm particularly angry at what some of the poor people in Cashel had to put up with. Uh, back in the day, as I say, they had to park their dignity in their pockets and go and beg, indeed, to to certain individuals along the way who seemed to have had a lot of power at the time as well. Barbara was on to say, uh, Fran, it's like the film Men Don't Tell. I know what it's like to be uh, controlled. There should be shelter for men, not just for women. Men do suffer too, and I feel for that poor elderly man. And that's making reference to... uh, the story there from Derek about how they supply advice uh, to uh, men. And it seems to be largely men over 60s now who are calling them and telling them about um, domestic abuse, coercive uh, control and uh, indeed violence in some cases as well. And again, I wonder, what do you think about that? 1800 938 Now, our GP, Dr. Pat Harrell, joins me. Good morning to you, Pat. Morning, friend. Well, it isn't a good morning at all. The rain's hot enough the car here. It's, it's I hope it doesn't upset your musicians here too much. Not, not a bit of it. It'll just add atmosphere, Pat. That's what yeah. it is. Uh, we were talking to a young lady yesterday, Pat, about stroke. Uh, she was only uh, 25 in her second pregnancy. She got uh, stroke. Very debilitating for her indeed. Oh, God, it's a terrible thing. And it happened at 25. Unfortunately, you know, something like one in five people get strokes or TIAs, but it's usually a much older age group. And um, somebody that age, well, it can happen, Fran. Yeah. There's a thing called cryptogenic stroke, which means they don't know what caused it. No, it's very, very rare. Um, the two things, in, and, and I, I didn't hear her, and I don't know her, and um, I, I wish her the best, but the two things that struck me was, um, one is, you know, in pregnancy, the blood pressure can rise alarmingly in some people. It's called preeclampsia. And the other thing is, you, you, we might have noticed that the um, they brought in legislation to give um, free contraceptive services yes. to um, people. And and an awful lot of people are on the pill. And um, 
you just have to keep an eye on the blood pressure. You know, that's just something in a very small amount of people when they start in the oral contraceptive pill, their blood pressure goes up. Mm. So, and we found not just people on the pill um, with COVID in the last couple of years and also people sort of have fallen by the wayside and they're still in their medication but they're just not doing the homework you know they're not checking in and getting the weight checked and the pill and it's not rocket science and this kind of thing but I'd hope this would encourage people to come more forward but you see it's, it's an insult to the brain a stroke is that the, the, the old fashioned expression um, the blood supply is cut off to a bit of your brain and um, it's, it's a complete emergency and the reason it's an emergency is um, there's a very small window when you can do something about it. Mm. Uh, the thing is called fast. You know, the yes. face is face drooping. Can you lift your arms? Is the speech slurred or incoherent or anything like that? And the thing is time. And if you're to get these, um, they're, they're kind of clot-busting drugs out the place, I think is one of them. Or there can be a kind of a radiology intervention where they, they shout that. And it can absolutely resolve all the symptoms. But, you know, you have 4.5 hours to get the clot bust and go into you and you have 24 hours for the other thing if you're suitable. Yeah, so Time you know, is of the funny, essence, yeah. It's a funny thing that people who get a stroke actually feel sleepy and they just want to go to sleep and they often say, ah, I'd be grand, I'd be grand, I'd be yeah. grand to go and leave me alone. Don't listen to them, you know, and call the emergency services immediately because then, you know, you might be tempted to hit the road and get in the car. But actually, um, there are things called stroke labs in the, in the big hospitals and they'll be catering for it and waiting for you and ready to go. Ideally, now we can't always say it, but, um, you know, and sometimes they resolve, it's called a transient ischemic attack, it's a TIA. It resolves in a few minutes, in, in an hour or two, but, you know, that's a dangerous sign. The next one mightn't resolve at all. So the, the, the moral of the story is stepping. Can I talk to you about something else, Pat, as well? But I know you want to speak to us about viruses today, and I'd love to do that too. But um, a, little later, a little later on in the programme, we'll be speaking to uh, a lady who was part of the primetime uh, programme last night that focused on codeine addiction, and it was an eye-opener of a programme, I have to say, Pat. Are you concerned about that, that over-the-counter we can buy codeine-based products? I am, and I and I often have been. You see, codeine things, um, they're they're like a small version of heroin, really. They're not. They're come from the poppy, the opium poppy, and they're a painkiller. And they also have an effect on the brain that can sort of make you make you happy, really. Actually, make some people happy. The only time I ever took them for a bad back, I felt as sick as a dog. Like nausea is part of it, and um, they're they're kind of designed, friend, that if you hit your thumb with a hammer or something, and you take a couple of these things, they're they're okay, but they're not for long term use, mm. and they make you constant. And they give you a headache. That's that's the thing um, you have to realise. If you're taking all these codeine products day in day out, they build up. They give you a cracking headache. If you stop taking them, you get a worse headache. And the thing about these tablets is, it's not only the codeine products that's in it; it's the things that are with it as well. You might have something like neurofen. And if you're taking, if you're overdoing it, because anybody who gets addicted to something, um, you don't get the same bang for your buck. It's what the effect wears off. All you then feel is the withdrawal because you're not getting it. You're not getting the pain relief thing. So they open it up. But now I've known people have taken 30 um, of these tablets a day and your kidneys and your liver just can't handle that. The codeine, you get a tolerance to. But the other things you just don't. They can blow holes in your stomach. Mm. You can stop your kidneys. And especially um, anyone over 70 should think long and hard before they take any of the um, ibuprofens or any of that kind of stuff because they're, they're not... Um, they can be very damaging to your health. So it is a problem. I believe a lot of the, the pharmacists got caught out, but it's 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 something I have regular, um, you know, rows, I suppose, with people about. You yeah. can't beat these things day and night. And we always try to keep 
use of them as short term as possible. Right. And do you think, like other countries, Pat, that there should be legislation in place that maybe you should need a prescription before you can buy codeine-based products? Well, I'd actually welcome it because they are dangerous. I think if they came into market now, they'd be far more regulated. You don't know more than if cigarettes or something came into market now, they wouldn't be legal. You know, so, I mean, um, it, it, you see, these legislation things work. And, you know, the, the legislation you can't buy um, paracetamol mm. in, in a shop actually does have an effect on suicide mm. and suicidality. It, it sounds crazy, but on a population basis, it does. So um, I've often heard people giving out to genetic code, but some people will abuse it and they go from shop to shop and they'll buy packet and packet. And um, like any addiction, you know, they're kind of deluded. They can't see, see it themselves. What people say to me is, and I always think it's dangerous, it's the only thing that works. And you think if you were genuinely interested in getting your, your pain relieved, you wouldn't, you'd, you'd be very keen on trying new things mm. and different things mm. and different techniques, which just means that the tablet has got a hold of you. Yeah, and as I said, we'll be speaking to, to a lady who was a victim of that in, in, in just a while as well. Um, will you talk to me a bit about the viruses, Pat? Because like Pat Short, I got a bit of a bad knockout uh, last week myself with a virus that hit me like like a ton of bricks. You know, there's a lot of strange stuff going out there. Ah, you got you got a knock, is that sure? <laughs> Man flu, as people tell is, me. Is it, is it above the neck or below the neck? You know, it's below the neck when you start coughing up things and going. Yeah, it was and that, that, was that stuff. horrible stuff. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. But you know, to make yourself winter-proof, you know, um, there's there's a few things you could do. Now, one of the things, man, is you know, we always going on. I was talking to my pal Jim Malak, and we were watching kids go by going to school. They're all drenched. They were saturated. And they had no coats on, and mm. they're going into sit all day in those. But there's no, there the evidence is very good there that what happens is the blood vessels in your nose constrict and um, you're more likely to catch cold. Mm. So, you know, the Scandinavians are the Scandinavians are great at this. You know, their houses are properly insulated for starters. Mm. They don't have open fires. They're not breathing in all the muck and dirt and coal and, and uh, stuff because they just don't let it into the place. Um, they, But they do actually believe it. And they also, and you should always try and eat um, fresh and stuff. And, you know, if everybody planted winter salads, because the things you need this time of the year are vitamin C, vitamin E and zinc and things in onions and garlic. There's about 200 different things in garlic. So, um, and they're all great for your immune mm. system. Um, you know, that that's, and, and um, herbal teas are great for yes. I know you're not a great fan, but, you know, the peppermint tea, drinking these away and um, there's a lot of things that can go wrong in the winter if we've time to talk about them one is the seasonal affective disorder 7% of people are going to get that and just before I came on I was looking at the price of the, the sad lamps Yes, you know they're the, the daylight lamps mm-hmm. and they've come down since we were last talking about this big time so um, the thing is to get plenty of daylight you know if, if, if you've got a lunch time don't sit in front of the screen eating sandwiches go out and get you know like the sun is shining a bit now if, if you were if you could avail of it and put on your hat and coat and go out and get that that's the kind of thing you need daylight not artificial light to keep the mood away because 7% suffer from seasonal affective disorder but 10 to 20% of people will feel more down in the winter mm. so you need the exercise and you need the um, you know the, the fresh food that comes from um, not travelling from South Africa or somewhere in a packet that comes from a farmer's market or something. Things like sweet potatoes, garlic, onions, all that kind of stuff to keep you happy. And you know, it's funny enough, friend, nature's great. Nuts are full of zinc, fruit, anything topical this time of the year, sort of local pears and apples and things. They're great for your health and they're just exactly what you need in winter. Practical stuff, Pat. 
Oh, it's stuff your mother told you. You know, the heart keeps to And exercise. Um, if you exercise for 30 to 60 minutes every day, a lot of people just sort of slump for the winter and they, they feel like eating lots of sugar and the two of those aren't good for you. And if you exercise, you'll sleep better. You should be able to get your eight hours a night. Um, and that refreshes the brain and washes it and gets ready for the things that are coming on. And decide it's winter time, I'm going to reduce stress as much as I can. You know, if you're bringing unnecessary stress. I mean, you can't avoid stress in your life, but there's a lot of things you just don't, just don't go there. Well, you know, Pat, it's, it's great, you great advice as always, Pat. You look after yourself, and thank okay, you for your you time this morning. Okay, you look after yourself Pat. too, Fran. If you <laughs> ring, if you need any more. Okay, Thanks, Pat. Thank care. you. Bye-bye bye to bye. you now. Bye-bye. That's uh, the great uh, Pat Harold there, live from Nina this morning. News and information is coming up. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie You're very welcome back to Tip Today, 1800-938-007. As ever, we'd be glad to hear from you. Just to remind you again, our final gardening slot for now is coming up uh, towards the end of uh, the programme. So if you have a gardening query, will you log it with us as soon as you can? Now, of course, we're on air every morning from nine and we spoke to Johnny in the first hour of the programme just after nine o'clock. Um, following up on our conversation with uh, Philly, who confronted uh, the couple about the, the burqa uh, that the lady was wearing and all of that. Well, Johnny gave his view on that conversation this morning. Here's what he said, had to say just after 9 o'clock. I got qualified as a pub manager, right? Mm. And I was living in, living in London and a, a pub came up and I took it on and it was down in Brixton. And Brixton, as you know, is all Afro-Caribbean sure. and African, yeah. African people. And the manager said to me, and I, I, I wouldn't be one for taking advice, but I took advice from this fella. He said to me, when you go down there, he said, all the people are different to you. He said, don't try and change anything, just join in with them. And where where I had the pub was Crack City. When I went down there, there was, like I said, Afro-Caribbean people. And they were of all different dreadlocks and different hairdos and different scarves and heads and scarves. I just joined in with them. And how how did you get on with them, John? I joined in with them, friend. It was the best time I ever had in my life so far. Was it? Was it? Because I joined in with them. The, The people that come here should join in with us as well. And enjoy the good Irish welcome. But as I say, the country has gone too cosmopolitan now and people are making issues of small things when there's other bigger issues in the world. And that's uh, John, uh, John's uh, commentary uh, to us this morning. Got a lot of a lot of attention to 1800 this month on Hidden Histories. Dr. Conor Reedy continues his occasional series on the Irish Civil War in Tipperary. Now, as the battle for the future of the new state raged across the country, the forces opposing the treaty continued to attack the physical symbols of government. Now, meanwhile, the agencies of the state worked to ramp up the security of the country and in doing so were forced to take possession for military purposes, I suppose, of key civilian infrastructures such as prisoners, uh, prisons indeed. Now, the October episode of Tipperary's Hidden History uh, deals with the consequences of the Civil War takeover of one of the most significant pieces of infrastructure in the country's prison system, the Irish Borstal Institution in Clonmel.
Anglo-Irish Treaty was the first formal step in the birth of the Free State and marked the beginning of the transition of Ireland's administrative institutions from British to Irish control. The narrow vote accepting the treaty in January 1922 highlighted a deep political division that ultimately led the country into a devastating civil war in the summer of 1922, lasting until the ceasefire in April 1923. Nonetheless, the business of state-building continued apace, and a transitional government was established during 1922 as political representatives drafted a free state constitution. Kevin O'Higgins was appointed Minister for Home Affairs in the interim administration, thus holding responsibility for the country's prisons and Borstal institution. Listeners are reminded that a Borstal was an institution solely operated by the prison system with the purpose of punishing and reforming habitual male offenders between the ages of 16 and 21 years. Ireland's first and only Borstal was located in Clonmel for 50 years between 1906 and 1956. It served the entire country and not just criminals from County Tipperary. It should be remembered that much of the work in assuming control of the apparatus of government in 1922 was carried out under the shadow of, first, the threat of physical hostilities, including the possibility of renewed British action, and then the actual outbreak of civil war between pro- and anti-treaty forces. The unrest had severe consequences for many aspects of government, with a particular burden falling on the prison system. Most of the prisons were under the control of the General Prisons Board or were taken over by the Free State Army, leading to a greatly reduced capacity for civilian prisoners. The Army used various institutions for the detention of internees incarcerated for their anti-treaty military activity as well as for the accommodation of their guards. In 1923, the General Prisons Board reported that this incursion into the day-to-day -day operation of the penal system caused much more overcrowding, and this in turn had a detrimental effect on prison discipline. At the political level, it was also impossible for the Home Affairs Ministry to implement any long-term strategies for the penal system as it was planned with other departments for the implementation of a permanent free state constitution. Under questioning at a Doyle committee dealing with the budgetary estimates for the General Prisons Board in November 1922, Minister O'Higgins was unequivocal in his opinion on the short-term prospects for the country's prisons. Labour Party Deputy Cahal O'Shannon, representing the Loudmead constituency, inquired whether the Minister had considered a thorough overhaul of the prison system. He described his own experience in prison as similar to being deposited into a criminal factory. He went on to point out that the prisons were very much overcrowded at that particular time, and this created substandard conditions. It was a fact that, for a time during and particularly following the Civil War, there was an increase in the prison population. Minister O'Higgins responded by declaring that serious reforms of the prison system were unrealistic. One does not build or try to build in the path of a forest fire, he argued. The situation could be revised once the unrest subsided, as this and other debates on the condition of prisons under the transitional state continued. The civil war manifested itself in two parts. 
The first phase consisted of a series of direct confrontations that saw the pro-treaty side removing the anti-treaty forces from all of their urban bases by the end of August 1922. Crucial to the success of the provisional government was rapid recruitment into the Free State Army, no doubt accounted for by the absence of public support for the anti-treaty side. After proving ineffective in this phase of the conflict, the anti-treaty forces resorted to the tactics that had served them so well in the Anglo-Irish War of Independence, and for the remainder of the year they carried out a campaign of ambush and guerrilla warfare. The activity was particularly focused on their stronghold province of Munster, but once again the government forces would prove successful, and by the end of December the anti-treaty forces were all but defeated. It was in the context of this second phase of violent activity that the Borstal, now at Clahine, took place. After years of campaigning for an improvement in the condition or even the location of the Irish Borstal system, the change came about unexpectedly. And this was perhaps not the nature of the change that supporters of the institution had hoped for. It's not possible to determine the exact date of the transfer from Clonmel to Clahine Workhouse, some reports state it was during the summer of 1922, while others suggest it was early October. The Clonmel Chronicle newspaper drew attention to strong rumours of a planned move in late September. In a lengthy editorial protesting against the move, it was pointed out that the town could ill afford to lose this community of 150 inmates and staff. It appears that the most likely date for the departure of the inmates was the 3rd of October, 1922. The same newspaper reported that the boys were transported along with their belongings and bedding by motor to Clahine Workhouse. It went on to discount a rumour that the new Borstal had already been burnt down. The Clonmel Nationalist on the 11th of October confirmed that and I quote, the Irish Borstal Institute has now been transferred completely from its first home in Ireland, the old county prison in Clonmel, to Clahine Workhouse. One week later, during questioning in the Doyle Aaron, Kevin O'Higgins explained the decision to transfer the Borstal was taken in order to make the buildings at Clonmel available for the Minister of Defence, quote, who urgently required them for military purposes. In October 1922, military authorities requested the Minister for Home Affairs to hand over possession of the Borstal Institution, quote, owing to the scarcity of suitable buildings to be utilised for the accommodation of troops in the neighbourhood of Clonmel, unquote, during the continuing civil war. After October, the premises were used as a barracks and headquarters of the Waterford Command of the National Army. When the inmates and staff were evacuated in October 1922, there were over one and a half acres of potatoes, a quarter of an acre of parsnips and one-eighth of an acre of carrots growing in the gardens of the complex. Clahine Workhouse was fully functioning when it, in turn, was forced to evacuate its inmates in October 1922 to the care of other unions. The Nationalist claimed that the move from the ordered conditions of Clonmel to a workhouse environment was difficult for all and that the Borstal staff found their working conditions to be rather irksome. O'Higgins was more enthusiastic about the suitability of the new facility. The workhouse was selected following the inspection of a number of potential locations. It had all the necessary requirements for the 80 inmates and staff. The buildings were in perfect repair, equipped with electricity, 
and an independent water supply and had up-to-date sanitation. There was excess accommodation for inmates and staff and the complex was fitted out with all the important workshops and a gymnasium. Little else is known about the period that the Borstal Institution spent in Clahine. Less than one week after the transfer from Clonmel, however, there was a successful escape attempt. Seventeen inmates escaped on Monday night, the 9th of October, and by the 14th of October, just two had been apprehended. Since its foundation in 1906, the Clonmel Nationalist had been an ardent supporter of the Borstal and the work of its aftercare body, the Borstal Institution of Ireland. The year 1922, though, was somewhat of a watershed in the relationship between the institution and the newspaper. Even though the Borstal would eventually return to Clonmel, the newspaper would never again provide such detailed regular coverage of its work. Clahine residents went to bed on Saturday night, the 4th of November 1922, safe in the knowledge that they were protected by a competent garrison of the National Army. They awoke early on the Sunday morning to find that they had been left defenceless following what was called the mysterious evacuation of national troops from the town. The decision to withdraw from the area was puzzling to the residents because valuable government property was now left undefended. Following this evacuation by the National Army, the anti-treaty forces arrived in the town and established their own base. At four o'clock on the morning of the following Wednesday, a message for the governor was presented to the external guard of the Borstal by a number of armed men to the effect that the complex should be evacuated within the next 20 minutes. The 81 inmates, as well as the staff, were awoken and collected their belongings and equipment. They moved to a nearby fever hospital. The attackers then proceeded to pour petrol over the workhouse buildings and, within a few minutes of being set alight, the porter's lodge, clerk's offices and a boardroom all collapsed. Soon the main building and some of the outhouses were gutted. All the while, it was raining heavily, so this was a very chaotic scene. The anti-treaty forces left the complex at around 6am. The residents of the town later claimed that any buildings that were saved from this attack only survived because of what they called their own courage and civic sense. The destruction of the workhouse was inevitably the main subject of discussion by the Board of Guardians for Clahine at a meeting on the 9th of November. The clerk reported that all bedding, furniture and clothing had been destroyed. Seeing that he was able to do little to save the burning buildings, he had engaged two men to remove two splendid presses from an outer section of the registry office, along with some books. His report to the board highlighted his own personal risk in the salvage operation. Certain buildings did survive, including the infirmary, apartments previously used by the hospital sister, the fever hospital and the night nurse's quarters. The clerk recommended that all the furniture he had managed to save should be auctioned immediately and the board should employ some capable men to guard the remaining buildings as he feared both would be subjected to a similar attack. The Board of Guardians and the Clerk were far more concerned for the financial and material implications for Clahine Union than for the future of the Borstal system. The ramifications of this event were significant not only for those on the scene but for the wider penal system in Ireland. 
In the space of two hours, the physical manifestation of the Borstal system in Ireland, carefully crafted over the past 16 years, was burned to the ground. The entity now consisted of only the inmates and the staff appointed to look after them. For most of that day, the Irish Borstal Institution had no walls, as the authorities divided an emergency response to that morning's misfortune. The most urgent task for the staff was to rehouse the inmates as quickly as possible. Soon after the attackers departed Clahin, the boys were gathered together and marched to the town of Cair, quote, in great fettle, singing songs at about 10 o'clock in the morning, unquote. Meanwhile, temporary quarters were established while a medium-term solution was put in place. The disaster that had just befallen the Irish Borstal system was the most dramatic event to have occurred in the history of the institution. Up until November 1922, the inmates' daily lives were subjected to the strictest control and the boys were rarely allowed to set foot outside the walls of the Borstal in Clonmel. It is impossible to interpret the inmates' good humour as triumphalist or merely as a reaction to this extraordinary crisis which had brought some much-needed excitement to their otherwise mundane lives in Borstal. The boys remained for two or three days in care, during which time there was some discussion of temporary accommodation being sought in Dublin. They were returned once again to the original Borstal in Clonmel, but soon transferred to Kilkenny Workhouse, where they remained until the withdrawal of the National Army from Clonmel in 1924. The Borstal Institution never returned to Clahine. Instead, it went back to its original home in Clonmel on the 16th of July, 1924. Fifty boys were transferred from Kilkenny to Clonmel in military lorries, along with the governor, chief clerk and around 18 warders and their families. This marked an end to a particularly turbulent period in the history of Clonmel Borstal and the beginning of another phase in its existence. And by the way, how did the Borstal system fare during its brief sojourn to Kilkenny Workhouse? Well, that period has disappeared from the documentary archive. So sadly, the answer must remain a part of Kilkenny's, and of course Tipperary's, hidden history. That's great, uh, isn't it? Uh, the great uh, Conor Reedy there, Dr. Conor Reedy and Tipperary's Hidden History is always uh, fascinating stuff indeed and if you want more of same, all you have to do is uh, go on to uh, Tipperary HiddenHistories.com and it's a wonderful uh, website of Tipperary's Hidden History and um, it's a really, really very fine website. I'm just looking at it here in front of me, in fact. So well done to Connor on that. You can listen back to all of the episodes over about, it seems like about 120 years at this point. But thanks to Connor. We'll take a break. We'll be talking gardening in just a little while. The Imro Radio Award winning Tip Today. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. Test drive the all new Peugeot 2008 compact SUV at Slattery's Garage, puck on. Choose from petrol, diesel, or fully electric. Slattery'sGarage.ie. Now, Andrea was back to us. Andrea spoke to me earlier on in the uh, programme and she was reacting to the letter, the Dear Phil. Uh, letter where the young seven-year-old was online and uh, discovered some information about 
uh, trans and the like and, um, you know, became interested in it and questioned his mother about it and one thing and another and then was even wondering, you know, whether or not uh, he might uh, prefer to be a girl. Um, anyway, Andrea was on to us reacting to that uh, this morning um, but she was concerned that some people who came on afterwards with some queries or with some comments, I beg your pardon, uh, said... Um, and other things and said that you know uh, the possibility of being online might make a child gay and what and Andrea did not say that she's at pains to point that out and I said that as well earlier on Andrea goes on to say I have gay friends and I resent being portrayed uh, portrayed as some sort of homophobic by other people after hearing me chat on radio this morning I'm shocked that that's uh, is what people took from what I was saying. And she certainly did not say that at all. But she did have grave concerns about young kids having um, unfettered uh, access to screens, I suppose. All right, it's time for guarding now. Elton Nesbitt joins me. Good morning to you, Elton. Good morning, Sam. And good to talk to you today. Um, I'm just wondering, Elton, and again, we were discussing this in the office earlier on this morning, is it time to retu- retire the lawnmower at this point, or do you go along with that at all? Well, see, the, the thing is, it's, it's still been quite mild, and there's still an awful lot of growth uh, still happening. But what I would do is just keep the lawn in check. But, I mean, raise it up high, uh, just doing a, a tip mow on the lawn, just keeping it in check. Because it's really because there's still still a lot of growth there that you want to keep the lawn nice and tidy over over the winter months. But you also need um, uh, 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 say more growth on top of the lawn to protect it from any hard frost or or uh, any very cold weather uh, during the winter months. So again, uh, keep, keep keep the lawn more up high and keep keep the lawn in check even even at this um, uh, stage. Now because at this time of the year you really get an awful lot of leaf. Um, uh, mould or, or, or leaf fall uh, going onto the lawns as well so it's very important to keep that clean and, and clear so you don't have very patchy um, lawns um, and it keeps away any uh, debris that, that may be uh, falling onto the lawn as well so it, it keeps it lovely um, weed free and, and um, tidy looking as well mm, A family friend of ours got a bit of a laugh uh, there last week because we ended up having uh, mushrooms growing in our lawn Yeah and mushrooms are great um, now it's very important to if you are um, harvesting any mushrooms, to know the, the different varieties. Some of them can be quite toxic. Yeah. But um, you can get. I often have these ink cap um, mushrooms now uh, coming up, and they're they're lovely on the breakfast table. Uh, they're they're quite nice as well. Or any any um, of, of the white mushrooms with the pink um, um, brill um, underneath it. They're they're quite good as well. Or often you get the bunch of the puffball mushrooms. It's like a round ball, yes. big white yeah. one. Um, and they're, they're quite nice when they're when they're juvenile um, as, as well. But uh, again, this time the, the mushrooms they only last for about um, a couple of weeks or so, and then they're gone. So they're, they're, they're not really to, to be too too concerned about. Um, sometimes you get some um, kind of yellowing patches on the lawn, um, and that's when 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 the mushroom starts to form uh, on it because it has the mycelium growing underneath the the, the lawn itself. Right, but it's um, not necessarily an indication of the health of the lawn if you see mushrooms. Well, 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 see, mushrooms are very vital, really, for, for plant growth. And um, uh, what happens, especially with trees and things like that, um, they release nutrients um, from the soil to the trees. Um, so they're, they're an important thing, really, to have in the garden as well. I would kind of encourage 
um, you know, to ensure when you're collecting the leaf mould, it's to, it's to put that at the base of your hedging or the base of, right. of, of, your, of your trees to encourage um, uh, 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 the mycelium, the, the root, root grow of, of the, um, the, the mushrooms themselves. Right, interesting. Uh, lots of questions in for you, Walton, because this is the final thought we'll have before Christmas, but you might talk to us around Christmas about um, uh, what we can do where the reeds and the dinner table is concerned and all of that. Um, could you please ask uh, Alton about the best planter shrub to plant around a bio tank, uh, something that doesn't have a big root, it says here. Yeah, really, the, the best thing for, for, for bio tanks and that, because they're quite some uh, ugly looking things, really, yeah. Yeah, I, I always like to have low growing shrubs and, and things that are evergreen as well, that, that keep a nice compact in habit as well. Um, so just, there's loads of things that you can put on that. Almost do a kind of, a, you can also do a kind of a screed bed. Um, uh, around the, the bio tank, and I, I always put a lovely um, a kind of weed control fabric over over that around the the, the bio tank and plant through that. And um, uh, things like um, uh, a, a barbers uh, a viburnum um, uh, davidi. It's a lovely neat round shaped viburnum and lovely evergreen foliage on it. Or you can think a thing called uh, Lanistra thalassa which is a lovely brown cover uh, shrub, uh, lovely dark green foliage on it as well. Um, heathers are quite good as well. Lots of the alpine plants are very good for, for, for that because they're more like carpeting plants. Um, things like lovely creeping thymes is, is lovely as well, lovely scent off that. Um, and um, also have things that are, are um, let's say, like the ground ivies. There's lovely um, hedrohelix. Um, glacier, which is particularly nice, lovely mm. silver foliage. And so have things that will have purple, purple, green, yellow, gold foliage uh, throughout. But again, it doesn't grow any higher than two to three foot high. Yes, because um, you still need access, of course, to your... You still need, yeah. still need access to it. Yeah. And, and, and then put a lovely... There's a lovely gravel that you could put around that as well, uh, kind of a golden flint gravel. And this uh, shows off the plants really well. And it, it disguises the, um, the, the biotank. You don't even see it um, because you have the lovely lovely planting around it. Again, I like lovely carpet roses are quite good as well. Uh, they're particularly good um, right through the whole summer. Or lavender as well. That's a nice combination together. You have the lovely pink and the blue of, of those plants. Alright, how do I store harvested apples to keep them from going bad over the coming months? It's very important when you're harvesting apples to harvest them when they're dry, the outer skin of them. And also, uh, when you're harvesting, you just place them in, into them, uh, uh, this is the crates. Um, generally, I put a, a sheet of newspaper between each layer of, of, of apples that you're, you're putting in. And then only you have the layers, only have it about four high as well in each crate. Um, have it in a cool, well-ventilated shed where you're storing them uh, is the most important thing as well. Um, make sure that there isn't any dampness. Uh, the forms and the outer skin of it. And that's that will store quite well. Some varieties are be- better than the other, others, but um, generally, if you keep, keep the outer skin of the apple um, uh, dry and as well as it, don't bruise the outer skin when, you, when you're storing them in, in the crates as well, because the bruising really does affect um, if they get damaged and when you're putting them into the crates. That's when they tend to rot. So try not, try not to have any bruising of the outer skin of, of the apples when you're storing them. Listener is very grateful to you for answering all of the uh, queries during the year, but also wondering, um, should she or he bring in, is, is it a saliva plant? 
for for the winter and wondering what other perennials should be brought in as well. Am I correct in that? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, salvia. Salvia. Um, yeah, yeah. Salvias are lovely. They're they're lovely things that flowers work the whole summer. There's one called salvia hot lips, which is particularly good. Um, now it's a little bit. It's, it is frost tender. So um, generally, what, what I, I have those normally planted. Uh, to at the base of a wall or, or, or even in amongst other shrubs where they're sheltered from any hard frost. The things with salvias as well, don't prune them until March uh, to do a tidy up on them. They tend to get very straggly looking at this time of the year. So it's important to leave that um, leave those stems on it uh, over the winter months. That more stems are on it, the more protection it has for itself. And then in March, once the growth starts again or, or into the middle of May, is to prune them back just halfway, just to encourage good full growth on them again. Um, any of the, the more tender plants, um, I would tend to either put a fleece over them in January, February, is the, is the, the two months really is to protect them. Things like your, your, even your camellia plants as well, um, uh, is to, to put a fleece over those so that the buds are protected from any, any, any hard frost or late frost in the, in the springtime. How do I harvest leeks? Uh, leeks are very good to harvest o- over the over the winter as well. Um, you only harvest, harvest them as, as you want them. So you let, let them grow. They're, they're fantastic plants, actually. Leeks and kale, actually, are great to have growing um, over the winter months. So harvest them as you want them. Um, there's no need to store them in, in the, the um, sheds or anything like that. Uh, so just harvest them as you want them. Best time to lower the height of a pear and apple tree? The, oh yeah, when when um, after harvesting um, is the best time to to prune them back fairly hard. Um, and again, with pears, especially the, the conference pears, which are which are quite hard when you do harvest them, um, they take about three weeks for them to season uh, to, to ripen well. So harvest them when they're at good size, and then after that, then prune back the trees. Any of the larger uh, branches that you do cut on, on on the pear trees or any any fruit tree for that matter is to use thing called an arbrix. Uh, heal and seal paint uh, on on the trees, so you don't get any canker or fungal attack on the trees. It keeps them nice and clean. Uh, at this time of the year, coming into the into the autumn, winter time, is I would use a winter wash on them as well. Is use a spray to get rid of any lichen or algae or moss that's on the tree. That keeps them lovely and clean and allows the fruit spurs to develop really well then in the springtime. So therefore, you get loads more flowers as well. It's a good idea for all the fruit trees is to feed them now with um, a sulphate of potash just at the base of the trees. So it's about a fistful uh, around the, um, each tree and that will encourage more flowers then in the springtime and therefore then more, more fruit. Final one for now, if you would, Elton. I have a rose with an elder flower growing through it. How do I get rid of it without damaging the rose? Yeah, which um, uh, roses? Um, now, with, uh, with, with the elder tree, um, it, it, it will tend to grow quite quickly uh, through, through the roses is to remove and um, cut that right down to ground level um, uh, as, as, as uh, the, the root system where, where the uh, rose is. Um, sometimes you get a, a thing called reversion. It's a thing called, a, like, a, you get a, the rosa rugosa or the, the wild dog rose coming up at the base of the, the, the rose that you have. Um, and that's called reversion. So you want to really get rid of anything like that, is cut that right down at the base where it's coming from. And that will stop it from re-sprouting as well. Um, which if it's elder tree, um, the, what I would do is use a thing called Roundup Stump Killer onto the stump of the elder tree, and that will get, the, get rid of the root system so it doesn't re-sprout again for you.
Alton, always a pleasure and thank you so much for all of the wonderful contributions uh, during uh, the year. We look forward to talking to you in December, Alton. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks, good, good morning to Alton Nesbitt there from Centenary Home and Garden. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Welcome back to uh, Tip Today. Have a listen to this. Despite tighter guidelines, Kate found that she was still able to buy codeine painkillers quite easily when she said she had period pain. I'd buy pads and I'd ask for nerve and plus. Then I wouldn't be questioned. I'd be plotting and planning all night long. Where am I going to go? What am I going to say? What pharmacist is going to be working? Oh God, what if it's that pharmacist? What am I going to do? Maybe if I put on my glasses, they won't recognise me. If I wear sunglasses, they won't recognise me. If I wear a hat. All this madness in your head. By 2014, Kate's dependence on codeine painkillers had done serious damage to her health. Towards the end, then, I was getting desperate pains in my stomach, not able to go to the bathroom, bleeding, constant bleeding. Within four days, I started vomiting blood. I was rushed up to the Mercy Hospital in Cork by ambulance. They were thinking it was gallbladder related till I told them the truth about the addiction and how much I was taking and um, they done the camera down to my stomach, found a massive hole from my stomach through to my bowel, burnt all the way through. And that's when it all came out, really, that how bad it was. That's just a little from a very hard-hitting primetime Investigates programme last night focusing on codeine addiction and how very, very easy it is to buy this uh, very addictive drug over the counter now, the lady featured in that... uh, uh, program and indeed in our piece there is Tipperary woman Kate Murray who joins me now. Kate, good morning to you. Good morning. And thank you so much indeed for coming on with us uh, this morning. Um, you, you, your story I just found heartbreaking uh, last night when I was watching it. Would you just tell us about initially initially when you first started taking codeine, why why did you first start? Um, I had experienced sexual abuse. Um, I was in a lot of physical pain but it turned out to be psychological. So I was taking her from plus um, just to feel numb. What I found was I took away the physical pain, but also took away the emotional pain. I didn't feel it anymore. So that's why I started taking them. You started off, Kate, with a couple of Nurofen a day. It grew to, to four. Within six months, it had escalated. And finally, it got to 90 a day just to feel normal, Kate, you were saying. Yeah, so ninety. Um, my max would probably be a hundred and twenty on very bad days. Um, and I got to the stage where my body was so used to the coding that um, it no longer had an effect on me. But I have to take that large amount just to feel well, so I wouldn't go into withdrawal. Now, any of us going in to buy codeine-based products. I mean, the pharmacist normally asks you a, a number of questions. How did you manage to buy so much codeine? Um, I found it easy enough. Um, I would go pharmacy shopping um, from pharmacy to pharmacy and never been refused even though I was a regular in and out. Um, yeah, so I kind of went everywhere. I would drive miles just to go to a pharmacy where they didn't know me. 
And the, init- the initial taking of the drug, th- that was before 2011 when those guidelines came into place, was it not? Yeah, that's right, yep. Now, when the guidelines came into place, um, were you still on codeine at that point? I had come off it for about 12 or 18 months. Um, and then because of personal circumstances um, and stress, and not being able to cope with life in general, um, I went back on them. And was it just codeine you were on at that stage, or were you taking yeah. other other things? No, just codeine. Just codeine. And uh, tell me about, uh, I mean, you, your health. I mean, this has to have been having an enormous effect on your health, even at that time. Yeah, it did. So, um... I was on it for about two years, I think, on and off, and um, I became very sick with pancreatitis. Um, when I was at that hospital, they failed to discover that I also had a hole in my stomach and through my bowel, so I was discharged from the hospital for pancreatitis. Within a few days, I started vomiting blood again, um, and I was still taking nursing, but I couldn't keep them down. It was coming up with all the blood. And I was rushed back into hospital. There's on a camera, and that's where they found the damage. So I have long-lasting effects in my pancreas and in my stomach because of it. Now, just to give people a notion about how addictive this stuff is, when you were getting help to come off um, the codeine product at Nurofen, they, they had to put you on methadone, which is normally how they would take somebody off heroin, for example. Yeah, so I'm a very case of a codeine patient going on methadone, but because I was taking such large amounts of codeine, I had no other choice but to be substituted as methadone because it was the strongest Okay. And, I mean, how did that work out for you? Did you get addicted to the methadone then? Well, at the beginning it was fantastic because I wouldn't... Sneaking around chemists and I actually had money again. But um, within a few months, I became completely addicted to methadone. Um, turned me into a very, very nasty person. Um, I started abusing methadone then without a year into my treatment. I'd take three days takeaway in one day, which would be up to the max of 300 mils. And then for the other two days, I would be in withdrawal. So, so because I didn't want to feel the withdrawal, I would drink um, those days um, just to take away the pain of the withdrawal because methadone withdrawal is, is horrific. And you say you were nasty. Were you difficult to be around then? Um, yeah, I will admit I was difficult to be around, but I was a very, very damaged person. Um I could not cope with anything. The only coping mechanism I had was to use something to stop me from feeling what I was feeling. Um, and that's it. Do you know what I mean? I know how to live life now. I know how to cope with things, but back then I didn't. Did you book yourself into to a centre at uh, any point? Yeah, so in 2016, in November, initially I wanted to go to Azure and Care. Mm. <coughs> Um, but it was waiting for funding for there and it was extra because of the methadone detox so that didn't work out um, I took an, a huge mental breakdown um, 
ended up in psychiatric ward in Cork, in St. Stephen's. And um, I was given the ultimatum, go get clean or go live on the streets. So I wanted it then. I wanted it for a long time to get clean. So the hospital helped me get into Congress in Cork. And did you get clean at that point then? Yeah, so I went in in November 2016 and I came out in April 2017. Um, I was five and a half weeks in detox, the longest they've ever had in detox. I didn't sleep for six weeks, so I fell into psychosis. I had to go back to the psychiatric ward where they regulated my medication and done things to help me sleep. Um, I was there for 10 days. And then I came back to Finland and completed my treatment. And did you get an opportunity during that time to look into your own soul and see where the darkness and the difficulty was coming from? Yeah, absolutely. You have different programmes every week. So it's a twelve-step programme, but it's, it's done weekly. So you do questions and answers and you delve into your past and as to why you have become addicted COVID wasn't good to you, though, because around 2020, did you end up back on Nurofen? I did, yeah. And I how, did. did. I mean, did you just get so low again, Kate? Is that what happened? Um, I wasn't in a great relationship. There was a lot of... Um, there was a lot of issues in that relationship. And oh. I fell back to the only crutch that I knew who gave me comfort. And that was Nurofen Plus. And did you go back taking a lot of it again? Yeah, I did. I went back up to 19. And that must have had a dreadful effect on your on your health. Yeah, I had dropped, I'd lost an awful lot of weight um, because you don't want to eat because you just feel full the whole time. And my stomach was in bits. Um, I was severely constipated because of the codeine. That's one of the side effects. Um, and yeah, I was just back in that deep dark hole. Can I ask you, how did you afford so much Nurofen? So, basically, I would get what I needed for the week, shopping, etc. Anything I had left over would be spent on Nurofen. And those days there, I didn't have any money, so I had to go into sickness for two or three days and start all over again. So when you say go into sickness, you go into withdrawal, I guess. Is withdrawal, that, yeah. is that, and was that just horrific? Oh, it's terrible. You have diarrhea, cramps, chills, vomiting. Um, you can't see properly. And um, well, that's what happened to me. And I kind of lost my vision an awful lot. And um, I'm not able to concentrate, just not able to do anything. And they're the exact symptoms that we would hear about where heroin um, withdrawal is concerned as well. Yeah, so I've, I've learned that codeine turns into morphine in your system. So therefore, it's the same as heroin. So you're going through a heroin detox. If you didn't have access or easy access to Nurofen, do you think you wouldn't be where you are or do you think you might have some found some other substitute? I'm not sure, to be honest with you. Um, I, I don't know how to answer that question, to be honest. I, no. I really don't know. I only know what I went through and what I've been through and how much I've fought to get with. Do you think there should be stiffer 
laws in place in terms of how easy it is to access these kind of products? Yeah, I do personally think so. I know that people use them for genuine use, but I don't think they're aware of how dangerous they are. And there's not enough help out there. Um, if you become a regular and the chemist starts to cop on you're a regular, they should provide you with some kind of assistance and say, listen, what's actually going on with you with addiction? But they don't do that. Right, because you believe there should be some sort of... Uh prescription set up in place and maybe a database of people who are taking this stuff as well? Yeah, I think it's just for everybody's safety that it's prescription only because like I said, because I thought because it was over the counter it's okay. You know, I don't have to go to the doctor for it over the counter. They wouldn't give me anything dangerous over the counter. But that's not true. And boy, did you find out uh, otherwise for sure. How are you right now as I speak to you, Kate? I'm brilliant. I'm very good, thank you. <laughs> are you? Yeah. Yeah. And what about in your head and mentally? Are you getting some help or have you... Yeah, I, I attend counselling um, every week and going through the treatment centre has given me a different aspect on life and how to cope with things. Now, I have had everything thrown at me. I've been homeless for the last two and a half years, living in emergency accommodation. We just recently got housed. Um, there's been a lot. There's been so, so much stuff that I've managed to take things out of And I'm very proud of myself for that. And you should be, and we're very proud of you too. For anybody out there listening to us who might be sort of about to go on that slippery slope, they might find themselves rather fond of Nurofen or, or some yeah. other product. What what would your advice to them be, Kate? Um, see, that's difficult because the advice you think I would give would be go to your GP for help, but I found, especially in the city, because there is such a problem with drugs in the city, no doctor is willing to help you. Um, but I would persist and persist until they got help. I'd contact trying to treatment centres you can even get outreach work and then think about going into the treatment if you feel ready. But you have to want it. You have to want it so bad for it to work. Because if you don't want it, it's not going to work. Because you're you're fighting a, a very powerful demon, I guess. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So I know how hard it is for people to watch someone they love in addiction. And all you want to do is help them. Unfortunately, unless they actually say, put their hands up and say, listen, I'm done with this. Unfortunately, there is no help for them. We heard, of course, last night as well about Laura Newell, uh, who sadly lost her life because of her dependence on codeine painkillers as well. Could that have been you, Kate? Oh, very much so. Right. Very much so. I don't know how I survived. I don't know how I never overdosed. Um... I have somebody pretty powerful looking after me because I shouldn't be here. Kate, we wish you well for the future and we are very proud of you and uh, look after yourself and thank you for sharing with us today, Kate. No problem, thanks very thank much. Thank you, bye-bye to you now, bye-bye. Bye. That's Kate Murray there talking to us about her addiction to codeine in the form of uh, Nurofen. It certainly is a a cautionary tale for, for, for sure. And thanks to Kate for being so open with us uh, today. That's it for me.
Um, Emma looked after the programme this morning Ellie looks after her content Stephen is on the way with the time tunnel and I will talk to you tomorrow at that stage we will be live from Ballyborine and we're looking forward to it you look after yourself won't you bye bye Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.